and welcome to the inaugural episode of Theology and Sci-Fi, the podcast. My name is Derek V. Trout, and I'm so excited you've joined me to look at Christian theological themes and ideas within the genre of science fiction. That's what we're all about here at this podcast, looking at Christian theological themes and ideas, and we do that through the vehicle of science fiction. Uh, so I'm excited, excited to start this with you. Before we get started, though, with our first work of sci-fi, I figure I need to tell you a little bit about myself. Since this is the first introduction, I think a uh, since this is the first episode, I think an introduction is in order. So to do this, I wanted to look at Aristotle and what are called his modes of persuasion. So according to Aristotle and these modes of persuasion, one should have ethos, pathos, and logos in their appeal to the audience. Ethos is an appeal to authority or the credibility of the presenter. In other words, how qualified is one to speak on the subject? So basically, what makes me qualified to have a podcast about theology and science fiction? Well, first of all, I'll start here and tell you a little about myself. I have a Bachelor of Science degree in Christian Ministries and Biblical Literature from Indiana Wesleyan University and a Master of Arts in Theological Studies from Asbury Theological Seminary. While I was at Asbury, my studies focused on ethics, philosophy, and doctrine. And then I also have another master's degree, this one from the University of Edinburgh in Scotland. From there, I have a Master's of Science in Science, Philosophy, and Religion. It's been real fun, and I, I love learning. I enjoy school. I enjoy that process and getting to learn and getting to write and getting to further develop some of those those skills and abilities. So, so I I've, uh, do have some educational qualifications in the field of theology. However, if you're familiar with the Dunning-Kruger effect, I find myself at about the middle of being an expert in the field of theology where the confidence and knowledge has dipped. And now I'm just waiting for it to start to go back up. I don't think it's got there quite yet. I'm waiting for that, that uptick. I'm waiting for it to be there. But I'm uh, still a student, still a learner, and I'm still continuing to grow. Also, along with qualifications, for over 14 years, I've served in various ministry positions at five different churches. And for the past 10 years, I've been in full-time ministry and have a passion for sound and biblical theology. So I have served in various different roles in three different denominations. I've served in churches in Indiana, Kentucky, Louisiana, Ohio, and now I'm back in Indiana uh, serving at a church here. So it's kind of come full circle in a way for me uh, and where I've been. So I have some uh, educational experience and I have some practical experience working in a local church for the past 14 years and the past 10 of those years has been in full-time ministry mostly working with young people, youth or young adults, or in the field of small group or discipleships, uh, discipleship, those kinds of things. So uh, that just speaks a little bit of my theological qualifications, both from an educational standpoint, but also from a, a practical standpoint. Now, regarding science fiction, I am qualified to speak about sci-fi only because I'm a huge fan of the genre. I was raised on science fiction. Um, I'm watching sci-fi movies and TV shows. As a child, I remember reading several of the thousands of science fiction books that my dad has in his own personal library. So many of them. And I would pick some off the shelves and I would read them and, and go through them. And I, I love doing that and watching movies and TV shows. I believe that science fiction is the beautiful genre. For you soccer fans, I, I believe it's soccer that they call the beautiful game for how it's played and how graceful it is. I'm not sure that I would necessarily uh, agree with that assessment, uh, but I believe that it's soccer that's called the beautiful, the beautiful game. Uh, 
how I'm going to refer to science fiction is the beautiful genre. I think that's how we should refer to it around here if you're listening to this, that science fiction here is the beautiful genre, and it is the genre that I was raised on. I was raised on sci-fi. The first sci-fi movie I remember watching was Total Recall when I was about five years old. Uh, I, I wore the Ghostbusters VHS out when I was young. For any of you people out there who remember VHS tapes, my parents told me I actually wore that out when I was young watching that movie over and over again. And I think Ghostbusters unquestionably qualifies uh, as science fiction. Uh, but I also watched Star Trek The Next Generation from the time I was two to nine years old and then watched it again on reruns as a teenager and then watched it again later on in life. The, the, the entire series, I've seen them all. Uh, I've watched... Watched X-Files from the time I was 8 to 17. Uh, read H. Beam Piper's Little Fuzzy and Ray Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451 before I was a teenager. Uh, currently in my office right now, <clears throat> excuse me, where I'm recording this, I have posters of Star Wars up, uh, of the first three movies um, in terms of A New Hope, The Empire, and Return of the Jedi. And, and also um, then on my other wall, I, I have a computer readout of the USS... Enterprise, uh, the computer screen readout uh, from from the next generation. Uh, so, I, so I love science fiction. It is my genre. However, in retrospect, I'm not sure what my my parents were thinking, letting me watch some of the movies and the TV shows that I did. Looking back and and seeing some of what was actually in that and and, and the content that was there. But nevertheless, I may not be here today without that. Um, so, so I I don't take that for its worth, I guess, but. Uh, I've seen Star Wars more times than I can count. Philip K. Dick and Clifford D. Samack are my favorite sci-fi authors. I, I've read several of their books, most of the works from, from each of them. I still have a few to go, uh, but, but, but I love those guys. I'm a huge fan of them. Um, also, you know, some other people from that age, like Andre Norton or uh, uh, Ursula Le Guin or um, Ar uh, Clark. There, there's so many other ones. Uh, from that time that I, I'm a fan of and, and that I love their writing. I'm a huge fan of the genre. Uh, I, I've tried some of the old classics from Millville and Dickens and Hemingway, but time after time again, instead I, I, I find myself pulling off science fiction books from my bookshelf before those other classics. I pick them up and they just don't capture my attention like the sci-fi genre does. For some reason, whatever that may be, Science fiction speaks to me like no other genre. So if I'm qualified to speak about science fiction, it's only because of the excessive number of hours I've spent watching, reading, and also studying the genre. I read multiple books and articles about science fiction or about the authors, about uh, different things that go into that with documentaries and preparing and, and all those different kinds of things. Um, and from my love of theology and from my love of science fiction, this podcast was born. And I believe that it is through fictional that the, the one of the that through fictional stories, truth can be seen. So in his classic sci-fi book City, Clifford D. Samack, hey, he's back. There he is again, a great author. But in, in his in the, in, in the fictional editor's preface to his book City, um, we read this line from Clifford D. Samack: One does search for truth in such simple tales as these. One does search for truth in such simple tales as these. And that is such a beautiful line. And it's a line that encapsulates what this podcast is about. 
and fictional tales one does search for and often finds truth. And that's what we'll be examining here in this podcast, how we can see the light of truth shining through science fiction, movies, TV shows, books, short stories, and all of that. And as you've already seen from how long this episode is, we're, we take a deep dive. We take a very deep dive into examining these books or movies, TV shows, short stories, whatever they may be. Um, these episodes are much longer than I originally thought they would be. So thanks for hanging around. Thanks for listening. Um, uh, I'm excited to go through this with you and glad that you are here. So thanks for tuning in and, and thanks for listening. Now, the second of Aristotle's modes of persuasion persuasion is pathos. Pathos appeals to the emotions of the audience to elicit feelings that are already inside of them. In other words, it's just being able to relate to the audience, to empathize with you, the listener, about questions you have and addressing doubts or fears that you may be experiencing. This also has to do with the passion of the presenter, and I hope it's clear to you in these few short minutes, uh, almost uh, over nine minutes now already, it goes quick. Uh, in, the, in these few minutes that I have a love and a pas- passion for theology, but also a love and a passion for science fiction. And I hope that's clear to you and that you can relate to that and, and, and that that will be able to, to relate, to, that we can relate to each other through that. And any uh, questions and concerns that you have about life, uh, whatever those may be, I hope I can relate to those as well because I'm sure that I have some of those same questions, that I have some of those same concerns. So what I do am doing is just inviting you to come along with me on this journey as we seek to learn more about truth, beauty, and life through the genre of science fiction. I love theology. I love science fiction. And I've had such a great time combining these two loves in these podcasts. I've watched movies and read books and prepared and studied and written. I'm passionate about these two subjects, and I hope that you are too. And if you're not at some point, I hope that you can become passionate as I am. And at the the very least, the very least, I hope we can learn a little bit about life together as we go through this first season of Theology and Sci-Fi, the podcast. Now, the third of Aristotle's modes of persuasion is logos. Logos is derived, derived from a Greek word that has a lot of different meanings. It can mean plea or opinion or expectation or account or reason or discourse or for those of you who are already familiar with theology, who have maybe already been in the church for some time, or, or just whatever it may be, you, you may be familiar with this word logos as word, uh, which is another uh, translation for it. Uh, but however, concerning the mode of persuasion, logos is the logic behind an argument. So logos tries to persuade an audience using logical arguments and supportive evidence. Basically, it's using facts and figures that support the speaker's claim or thesis. So looking at theology and how these doctrines are seen in science fiction, I'm going to use sound argument and logic, or at least I hope I do. So I hope that you, the listener, can hold me accountable to this and communicate to me through our website or through social media or through email if my logic is ever faulty or if I have any fallacies or anything that just doesn't seem right. So... Go ahead and let me know when I make a mistake. I'm open to your questions and comments and criticism. Hopefully we can learn uh, together uh, as, as we go through this. So you can contact me at theologyandsci-fi.com. That's no dashes, all one word, theology and sci-fi. And around here we spell sci-fi the right way, S-C-I-F-I. So you can also find me on Twitter or Instagram at Theology and Sci-Fi. Again, no dashes, spelled the correct way, just one word. Or you can follow Theology and Sci-Fi, the podcast on Facebook. Or you can also email Theology and Sci-Fi, again, all one word, 
theologyinsci-fi at gmail.com. So those are some ways that you can uh, reach out and some contact uh, and be able to contact me. So I hope that you've learned a little bit about me. And over time, I hope that I get to know you, the listener, and learn a little bit about you as well as we go together uh, through this journey. So with all that being said, let's get started. And honestly, for me, there's only one place to start. So some of you might be guessing, well, you've probably already seen the title of the episode. You probably already know what's going on. So you're probably not guessing at this point. Um, you know more, the, the, well, anyway, uh, more more than I, th- I think you do at this point. So, so so I think probably people think that the, the way to start when we talk about science fiction is probably looking at Star Wars. It's kind of the, the revolution uh, of science fiction, especially within film. And spoiler alert, you can turn tune in in January of 2022 for episode two, and we will be talking about Star Wars, but that's not where we're going to start today. For me, there's only one place to start. It's a movie that I remember watching as a teenager and seeing the similarities between this movie and the gospel account of Jesus told in the New Testament and the Bible. This movie I watched as a 14-year-old and noticed how closely it mirrored the life of Jesus. Of course, it's not a perfect mirror image, but it has all or most of the high points, and we're going to see that as we go through it today. This movie was released on March 31st, 1999, and stars Keanu Reeves, Lawrence Fishburne, Carrie Ann Moss, Hugo Weaving, and Joe Pataliano. It is The Matrix. And it seems more fitting than ever to start with The Matrix. So I'm not kidding you when I say that I started on this podcast before there was an announcement that there's going to be a fourth Matrix movie. And then I kind of put some things off. There was a move in the middle of 2020, and and things just did not get done as quickly or as much as I hoped that it would with this podcast. So it's been literally in my mind for several different years and I've worked on it some here and there but 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 when I heard there's going to be a a announcement there's going to be a fourth matrix movie and then I heard the, the release date for it and then some other things happened some friends would say something there's some sermons that I heard uh I just felt that that the a pull upon my heart to release this podcast and to release it soon so here we are but before we dive into the first matrix I'm just going to say a few things about matrix for the new movie that's coming out. Um, and first of all, I have very low expectations. Now, that doesn't mean that I don't want Matrix 4 to be great or that I think it's going to be terrible. I'm just not expecting very much from it. I know so many people who have got hyped and expect epic things from Matrix 4 based on the trailer. And oh my goodness, is that an awesome trailer? And with the Alice in Wonderland music playing in the background and all those the, those allusions to that and, and it just is so good and, and it looks like it could be really great but i think that some people are going to be disappointed so uh, here's a life hack for you always go into movies with low expectations go in not expecting much go in with that bar set low and movies that are just okay or, or good will, will be much more enjoyable but if you go into movies with high hopes, you think it's going to be one of the best things you've ever seen, or you think it's going to be amazing, or you think it's going to be great, or you have so much hope and expectation for it, and then it's just okay, you're going to be disappointed. So keep those expectations low and enjoy movies more. The second thing about Matrix 4 is that I could not be more disappointed that Lawrence Fishburne was not even asked to be in the movie. How can you not ask the Morpheus to be in the movie? I'm actually a big fan of Yahya Abdul-Mateen II, who plays Morpheus in Matrix 4. I really like him and other things that I've seen him in, so that's not my problem with him. I, 
Again, seeing that trailer, I actually think he might do a really good job at that, but he's not Lawrence Fishburne. And Lawrence Fishburne is Morpheus, and I want my Morpheus. Give me my Morpheus. Um, uh, but anyway, alas, it is a big disappointment that he was not even asked to be a part of this. So, um, but anyway, those are just a quick, a uh, few quick thoughts uh, on the Matrix 4. And maybe we'll take a deep dive into that uh, sometime later on. But for now, we turn our attention to the first Matrix, and that is the only Matrix film we're going to be discussing and looking at today is, is the first one. So The Matrix was written and directed by the Wachowskis and distributed by Warner Brothers. And The Matrix was, was given an R rating by the Motion Picture Association of America, or the MPAA. Now let me give some of you pause. There is still a discussion among some Christians as to whether... Christians should be watching rated R movies or or not. I don't think that discussion is happening nearly as much as it was even 10 years ago. Certainly not as much as it was happening 20 years ago. Uh, so, so I'm not sure how beneficial this discussion will be, but it's still a discussion for some people in some parts. And I uh, don't want to suggest or go tell someone, hey, go watch this where it could lead to something that they could see or that they could um, experience that they would maybe be uh, led astray by or... Or, or something like that. So um, I feel a responsibility here to discuss whether it's okay to watch The Matrix when it gets this R rating or not. So we're going to look at why The Matrix is rated R and if it's okay uh, for Christians to watch or not. So first of all, a great resource that I recommend to look at regarding movie ratings is the website kidsinmind.com. That's kids-in-mind.com. And their number rating, they have a number rating for content in movies. And on their website, this is what they state about their content ratings. Unlike the MPAA, we do not assign one inscrutable rating based on age, but three objective ratings for sex and nudity, violence and gore, and language. And it's on a scale of 0 to 10 from lowest to highest, depending on quantity and context. So for each movie, they give a rating for sex and nudity on a scale of 0 to 10. For violence and gore, 0 to 10. And for language, 0 to 10. So the rating given for The Matrix was a 275. And each number goes in that order. Sex and nudity, violence and gore, and language. So The Matrix get a, gets a 2 in sex and nudity, a 7 in violence and gore, and a 5 for language. Typically a 275 relates, uh, results in a PG-13 rating. As a matter of fact, for over 20 years now, People have been asking why The Matrix got an R rating. There's some, you can go on internet boards or see articles written about it. That This question is out there. Um, there's some internet speculation as well as to why The Matrix got an R rating is because um, the, the writers and directors asked for that R rating because they thought that it would be more gritty, that it would be more serious, that it would draw on a different kind of audience. But I've done some fairly extensive research on this and have never been able to find where the Wachowskis or anybody else associated with that film said that they pushed for an R rating for any any reason. So that may be what happened, but I just cannot find any kind of quotes about that. Maybe somebody out there can and knows a little bit more than I do. Next, many people think that maybe you just couldn't get away with as much in 1999 as you can now. I mean, we're 20 plus years away. So is a 275 a typical scale for a rated R movie 20 plus years ago? Well, I'm just going to list for you a few movies that were released in 1999 or sooner that have similar or worse ratings than The Matrix, according to Kids in Mind, but yet received a PG-13 rating. So keep in mind that a Matrix was, The Matrix was 275. 
Jurassic Park gets a 264. So essentially, if you're okay with the sex and nudity in Jurassic Park, you'll be okay with it in The Matrix. There really isn't much going on there, and we'll even talk about that in a few minutes. But The Doctor, uh, the Island of Dr. Monroe and Clear and Present Danger, those two movies got a 265. As Good As It Gets got a 366. Anaconda got a 485 and was rated PG-13. The Matrix gets a 275 and was rated R. And Titanic, ooh, get this one for Titanic. Titanic receives a 665, yet is rated PG-13. And there are multiple other examples that I can give you for that as well. And then here are a few movies that are rated worse that came out within three years of The Matrix. There's Charlie's Angels, came out in 2000, 564. Gone in 60 Seconds, 565. Vertical Limit, 475. The Sixth Day, 575. Rollerball, the 2002 remake, 575. If you're going to watch Rollerball, go watch the first one. That's just my thoughts on that. And then Minority Report as a 565. Minority Report, great short story based off of a Philip K. Uh, great great short story. That's a Philip K. Dick short story. Okay, movie. Uh, but that got a 565. But I can keep on going. Oh, why don't I? There are several franchises that receive a similar rating on Kids in Mind to The Matrix, yet they are all rated PG-13. Essentially, all the movies of the Marvel Cinematic Universe that are rated PG-13 get something very similar to a 275 on Kids in Mind. They're all about that rating in there. The Mission Impossible franchise, all rated PG-13, very similar to a 275 in The Matrix. The Mummy franchise, the Transporter franchise, the Taken franchise, the Born franchise, the Transformers, the Fast and Furious franchise, all of these are very similar ratings to The Matrix on Kids in Mind, yet all have received PG-13 ratings. But the Twilight franchise is rated worse for sex and nudity, and the same or worse in violence, but a little less in the language category. And the Lord of the Rings movies receive a 7 for violence, the same as The Matrix. Even some of the late, later Harry Potter movies uh, in that franchise receive very similar ratings as The Matrix. So what I'm just saying, and I just dropped a bunch of facts on you to try to give you some support for this outcome uh, I have for watching The Matrix, that is it since the, the Matrix, um, basically, if you are okay with PG-13 movies in any of those franchises I just listed or the Marvel Cinematic Universe, if you are okay with those, you'll be okay with The Matrix. Uh, as I always will, I encourage parents to watch the movies for themselves before determining it's okay for your child to watch. So really what I'm talking about here is someone who's an adult. And in my personal opinion, I say it's okay as a Christian adult to watch The Matrix. Now, I don't feel comfortable saying that all rated R movies should never be watched by Christians because I don't like making such a general statement or an oversimplification. So I also don't feel okay saying all rated movies are okay either. I, I, I don't believe either one of those statements to be true. I think that when it comes to rated R movies, we need to do some research. And each should be taken on a case-by-case basis as to whether Christians should watch that movie or not. And here's another thing that really gets to me. The MPAA, who hands out these ratings, the Motion Picture Association of America, is not a Christian organization. It has no affiliation with any church. So it's very interesting to me that so many Christians are so fierce in their support of the arbitrary ratings of the MPAA. 
Some Christians look at those ratings as though they are gospel, but they are not. The MPAA should not be so trusted, and each individual needs to do some research of their own to determine the content of a movie and if it should or should not be watched. The MPAA is not living under the same kind of morals and standards as we as Christians are. They're not a Christian organization. They're, they're, they're not following what we are. So when they just put out these ratings and so many people just trust those, it just seems absurd to me and, and, and more research needs to be done. So here's what Kids in Mind says regarding The Matrix. About the two rating for sex and nudity on Kids in Mind, here's what they say. There's one kissing and one dirty dancing scene in a nightclub. It's implied a man is naked, but we only see his bare torso. And there's one brief shot of cleavage. That's all there is for sex and nudity in the first Matrix film, which is all we're talking about today. About the five rating for language, we read an obscene, obscene finger gesture, several anatomical references, several scatological references, and lots of mild obscenities and numerous insults. There is a seven rating for violence, and it's kind of extensive in what they say about it, so we're not going to take all the time to read here, but it, it is gun violence is what it is. So so Jurassic Park gets a seven for violence, but that's like dinosaur violence, uh, much different than Matrix violence, which is gun violence. So they both get sevens, but they're different in the kind of violence that they are. Uh, but there's actually very little blood seen on screen in the matrix and the violence is similar to movies that we've discussed earlier within an, or in the fast and furious franchise or the transporter franchise or, or whatever those may be very similar um to violence in those so you need to make the decision for yourself what movies you are and are not going to watch but as an adult personally i'm comfortable watching the first of the matrix film which again we're not talking about the entire Matrix franchise, just the first film here in this first episode. So that's making a case why it's okay to watch some rated R movies, and I don't know if that will sit well with you or not, but I'm going to do my own research and not trust the arbitrary ratings of the MPAA, uh, which is what I encourage you to do as well. So with all that said, let's get going. Let's dive into The Matrix, the first film. Of course, there's going to be a heavy amount of spoilers that are about to follow, so just make sure that you are aware of that. And what you may want to do now, if you have never seen The Matrix before and it sounds like a movie that you are comfortable watching, you may want to pause this and go and watch it and see what it's about and then come back and join us once you're done with that. Or maybe you it's been a, a while since you've seen it and you want to go back and you want to watch it and kind of do a refresher. Go ahead and hit pause. We'll be waiting here for when you come back. Or maybe this would be fun, I think, and maybe at some point I'll even try to do something like this, is do a watch-along. Because I'm going to go through scene by scene. Some scenes we will talk about more than others because some themes are, are more significant in their theological themes and ideas than others are, but you could do a watch-along. And when I say, hey, when we get to this point, you could just pause it. Uh, that may be fun. Uh, good luck trying to do that if you do. Uh, if anyone does that out there, send me an email or send me a message or something and let me know how it goes. I think that'd be fun uh, and exciting. So let's dive into it, though. The Matrix starts with two characters, Trinity and Cypher, talking in that green scrolling code uh, falling on the screen. Uh, that, that That's an iconic look, uh, those green letters and, and code ju just falling, and it, it's so great. But within the first minute of the film, we already have the similarity between the Matrix and the Gospels. Trinity says that Morpheus, uh, who's another character, believes he is the one. 
Of course, they're talking about Neo or Mr. Anderson. But remember this. We'll get back to it later on. So Trinity is in the Matrix, and she is there and is surrounded by um, some police. They're trying to to capture her, and uh, agents get there, and they're trying to kill her, but she's able to escape. She dials the operator just in time uh, before she gets uh, before she gets killed. So essentially, they need to dial into the Matrix, and they need to dial out of the Matrix and have a phone to do that. We'll get into that a little bit more, but if you've seen the movie, you know what I'm talking about. There's just amazing visuals in this first fight scene with the stop motion capture with Trinity. I, I remember it being absolutely visually beautiful. beautiful. Trinity can make um, uh, j- j- just the, the way that she fights and gets out of that is just fantastic and it's just beautiful. And there's also something else we should probably mention here too is just Trinity and her name. So if you're familiar with Christian theology, uh, the most important question that we ask in theology is who is God? Most important question we can ask. And, and the, the Christian answer to that question is that God is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The triune God, the three in one. And oftentimes we use the, the word Trinity to refer to who God is, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So here we have a character named Trinity. So we already see some of those theological ideas just in the name of the character although I, th- I think that there's not a whole lot of similarity between the one character trinity and the triune god the three and one but anyway nonetheless we see that here the idea of trinity and also that importance within christian theology because that is our answer to who is god he is the trinity the father the son and the holy spirit um that's how we answer that god is the trinity so next in the movie, we cut to Neo, and he's sleeping on his computer, and somehow his computer's writing to him. Nobody's typing on it. It's just there, and knows when he's going to wake up, and it tells him the Matrix has you. And it also tells Neo to follow the White Rabbit. Uh, so some people show up at his house, and they give Neo $2,000, and he pulls a book off of his shelf titled Simulacra and Simulation. It's a hollowed-out book, and he he, he hollowed out book and he takes this CD out of it with who knows what's on there. Who knows what could possibly worth, be worth $2,000. It's on the CD and he hands it to the man who, who has given him the money. And then the man replies, Hallelujah, you're my savior, man. My own personal Jesus Christ. Now this is a not so subtle reference to who Neo is going to represent or, or who he is going to, he's going to be, he's going to be a Christ figure for the rest of the film. Uh, not very subtle with this reference at all. Uh, kind of comes out and tells you right in the open, right right away, um, who Neo is going to represent uh, in this film. But first, let's go back a little bit and take a look at the book that Neo pulls off of his she- uh, off the bookshelf. I think this is important. Uh, it's, the book is, is by uh, French philosopher Jean Baudrillard and is titled Simulacra and Simulation. Now, this is one of the books that the Wachowskis required the entire cast of main characters to read before filming began. And from my understanding, Keanu Reeves is the one who loved this book more than any others and really made a connection with it like none of the other cast did. Now, personally, I knew little about Simulacra and Simulation before um, before I started doing research for this podcast. So I thought, well, this may be an important book, and I've actually heard about it before with the cast. So I, so I went out and picked it up, and I got it, and... Uh, 
So I read some of it. And while I read all of it, but but I feel like even after reading Simulacra and Simulation, I don't know a whole lot more than before I read it. Um, it's a difficult book, I think, to understand. Maybe some of that's lost in translation. I'm not sure, since he's a French philosopher who wrote it in French, and then it was translated to English, and I read it in English, but I don't know. But here's what Baudrillard, at one, part, at one point, has to say about the idea of simulation. The dissimulate is to pretend not to have what one has. To simulate is to feign to have what one doesn't have. One implies a presence, the other an absence. But it is more complicated than that because simulating is not pretending. So Baudrillard is saying to simulate is to pretend to have what one doesn't have, but it's more complicated than that because simulating is not pretending. He also goes on to say that therefore pretending or dissimulating leaves the principle of reality intact. The difference is always clear. It is simply masked, whereas simulation threatens the difference between the true and the false, the real and the imaginary. If you can follow that, you're doing better than I am. Uh, and maybe you can tell me a little bit more about this and, and this idea and what this all means. Uh, it's very complex, I think, and hard, again, to follow at many points, at least it was for me. However, what I do like and what I do understand about Baudrillard's work is his example of simulacra. Now, you may not be familiar with simulacra. I was not either before reading this, but the Google machine defines simulacra as an image or representation of someone or something. So in his book, Baudrillard uses the example of the Lascaux Caves in southern France. These caves are known for their prim primitive cave paintings. They have some cave paintings on them that are very, very old. And after World War II, the caves were open to the public, so people started to come around to look at these these paintings in the Lascaux Caves. And there was about 1,200 people coming to the caves each day, and that began to change the caves. First of all, they put some artificial light in there so that people could be able to see better, so they could see the cave paintings, uh, which changed a lot of different things within the um, caves and also for the paintings. But then they also, uh, since so many people were coming in there, the air circulation had changed, and mold started to accumulate. So that was another problem. And of course, people went into these caves, they saw these old cave paintings and wanted to take part of it home with them, so they started to take pieces of the cave. So, so not long after, the caves were shut down, and only a few people were allowed to visit. Now, with that in the background, for the Lascaux Caves, this is what we read by Baudrillard about simulacra. With the pretext of saving the original, one forbade visitors to visit the Lascaux Caves, but an exact replica was constructed 500 meters from it, so that one could see them. One glances through a peephole at the authentic cave, and then one visits the reconstructed hole. That is the idea of simulacra in a nutshell, and it makes sense to me. And personally, I think it sounds very Matrix-like. And I can understand how that uh, and this work by Baudrillard would influence the Matrix uh, with this idea of simulacra. Another note, Baudrillard says that Disneyland is the perfect model of all the entangled order of simulacra. It's an imaginary world that is supposed to ensure the success of the operation. I believe we could say the same thing about the Matrix uh, that the machines have built in this movie. So again, I understand the influence this uh, had on The Matrix. And personally, I think The Matrix did a pretty good job of catch, capturing Baudrillard's idea of simulacra, according to how I understand it. But however, Baudrillard himself would disagree. 
Uh, Bob Gerard was alive when The Matrix came out. He watched it, and he said that this, uh, I, the, that the movie stemmed mostly from misunderstandings of his work. An article on the website Quora by Chris Peters titled, What Relationship, If Any, Exists Between the Matrix and Jean Baudrillard's Simulacra and Simulation, he points out this. Baudrillard felt the Matrix films got things backwards. Instead of removing audiences from illusion, the film draws them further in. As Baudrillard suggests, the Matrix is surely the kind of film about the Matrix that the Matrix would have been able to produce. Which is kind of funny. Meaning that in terms of the Matrix universe, the machines would have created these films as propaganda to film to further control people. Again, I think the Matrix, though, does a pretty good job of capturing the French philosopher's ideas, even if he doesn't. Now, the example of the Lascaux caves that Baudrillard uses may have reminded you of another philosopher and a different cave. Of course, we're talking about Plato and his cave. And Wikipedia has a pretty good, concise summary of what Plato and his cave is. So we're just going to read that because I think that Plato's cave also has some influence that we see here upon the Matrix. So here's what Wikipedia says about Plato's cave. A group of people who have lived chained to the wall of a cave all of their lives are facing a blank wall. The people watch shadows projected on the wall from objects passing in front of the fire behind them. And they give names to these shadows. The shadows are the prisoner's reality. So the inmates of this place do not even desire to leave their prison for they know no better life. The prisoners manage to break their bonds one day. And they discover that the reality was not what they thought it was. They discover the sun, which Plato uses as an analogy for the fire that man cannot see behind him. Like the fire that casts light on the walls of the cave, the human condition is forever bound to the impressions that are received through the senses. Even if these interpretations are based on an absurd misrepresentation of reality, we cannot somehow break free from the bonds of, bonds of our human condition. We cannot free ourselves from phenomenal state, just as the prisoners could not free themselves from their chains. So Plato in his cave calls into question what is reality. What is real? And how can we really know for sure if anything is real or not? And that sounds very Matrix-like to me, does it not? So there are many works out there that link the Matrix to Plato's cave, and I, I think they are right to do so. But personally, I see Baudrillard as a hyper-Platonist, meaning that he is even more Plato than Plato, as Baudrillard questions the realness of everything. Uh, so so th those, those two caves, those two philosophers, those two ideas, I think, had a lot of different in influence on the Matrix, and I think that we can see that as we go through this film. We go back to the movie, and one of the people in the group who bought the CD, she has a white rabbit tattoo on her shoulder, and Neo sees that, and he knows what his computers told him earlier, to follow the white rabbit, again, very Alice in Wonderland-ish, and he agrees to go to the club with them. And it's here at the club that he meets Trinity. And Trinity tells Neo that he is in danger, and that he is looking for an answer, an answer to the question, what is the Matrix? Well, the next day, Neo's at work, or at least I guess we assume it's the next day. Neo's at work, and he gets a package with a cell phone. And as he opens the package, the cell phone starts to ring, and there are agents who are coming up to, um, to Neo's work, and Morpheus calls him on the phone and tries to direct him out of the building to get away from the agents, but Neo is caught. The agents take him into custody, and we find that Neo is a hacker who is guilty of virtually every computer 
crime that they have a law against. And the agents ask Neo to help them find Morpheus, who they say is considered by many authorities to be the most dangerous man alive. They offer Neo a chance to wipe the slate clean if he helps them bring Morpheus, whom they call a known terrorist, to justice. Watching this movie in preparation for this podcast, I wrote myself a question here. Is this Jesus' temptation in the desert? So when we read the gospel accounts of Jesus, when we look at those, Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist, and then he is led out into the desert, where after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he is tempted by the devil. The first temptation that the devil gives to Jesus is challenging him to turn some stones into bread. But Jesus replies, It is written, People won't live only by bread, but by every word spoken by God, and he resists the temptation of the devil. Second, the devil takes Jesus to the highest point of the temple and says, Since you're God's son, throw yourself down, for it is written, I will command my angels concerning you, and they will take you up in their hands, so that you won't hit your foot on a stone. But Jesus replies again, it's written, Don't test the Lord your God. Then the devil takes Jesus to a very high mountain and shows him all the kingdoms of the world. The devil says to Jesus, I'll give you all these if you bow down and worship me. And Jesus replies, go away, Satan, go away, because it is written, you will worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And then the devil leaves Jesus and angels come to attend him. I'm not sure that this is supposed to be a parallel, but I see some similarities here. The devil tries to get Jesus to flip sides. The devil wants Jesus to worship him instead of staying loyal to God the Father. But Jesus refuses the deal. He doesn't give in to that temptation. In the Matrix, the agents try to get Neo to flip sides and work for them. Trying to turn in people, Morpheus, and trying to work with them to capture him, uh, work for the other side. But Neo refuses the deal. He resists that temptation. I see some similarities here in the tempting by the devil happens before Jesus really begins his public ministry and the tempting of Neo happens early on in the movie. So maybe there's some correlation timeline things, but not maybe exactly. Uh, so so I, I think I see some similarities here, certainly, that Neo is faced with a great temptation. Hey, you're guilty of every computer crime we have a law for, but we can wipe the slate clean if you just come work for us. But he says no. On the other hand, Jesus is not guilty of anything because he is without sin, so he's not like Neo in that way. But he is given a temptation to join the other side, to give in to what the devil is, is trying to get him to do. But Jesus also says no. So there are some similarities and some differences uh, with that that I thought are, are worth pointing out. But then back in the movie, some weird things start to happen. Neo asks for a phone call, because you always get one phone call, right? I don't know if that's true or not. I've never been in jail, but I assume you maybe get a phone call. I don't know. That happens on every like TV show, movie, whatever. Anyway, Agent Smith asks, what good is a phone call going to be if you're unable to speak? And then this creepy scene where Neo's lips fuse together, and he can't talk, because he's just got this flesh where his lips should be, and it's just this, it's, it's a creepy scene, but then... Then it gets even a little more creepy because the, the agents put a mechanical bug into Neo through his belly button where it can track, uh, can track his every move. So Neo wakes up in a sweat in his apartment and it appears uh, to him, he thinks that it was all just a dream, but it of course was not. 
he gets a call from Morpheus and he's told he is the one and Morpheus tells Neo that he has spent his entire life looking for him and they arrange to meet for the first time. So Trinity, Switch, another character, Apoc, another character. They pick up Neo in a car and then they debug him. They take the bug out the same way that it came in uh, through his belly button, uh, which again is is creepy and, and um, kind of a disturbing scene with that as well. Uh, especially you know, if, if, you, if you if you try to empathize with Neo, I would not want to be in that situation having that happen to me. But they go to an old, rundown, gothic-looking hotel, and Neo and Morpheus meet. And then Morpheus asks Neo a question: "Do you believe in fate?" And Neo responds, "No, because I don't like the idea that I'm not in control of my life." And I think here we can all relate to Neo to some degree. I think we all like to be in control of our own lives, right? We want to be the boss of ourselves. We want to do things when we want to do things. We want to have things how we want to have them. We want things done when we want them done, how we want them done, who we want them to do. All these different things, we want to be in control. That's part of the human condition that we have. And I have found that most people like the idea of fate when fate lines up with what they want. Have you noticed this? Sometimes lovers claim that fate has brought them together. But have you ever heard anyone give fate the credit for the breakup? I don't think I have. Uh, because we like to have this idea that, that, that fate's on our side when things go good. Maybe not on our side when things don't go good. Or, or maybe we just don't want to believe in fate at all or just don't like that because we want to be in control. Because we want to be all about our own lives and make sure that we can do what we want when we want and how that we can get what we want and that we want that control of our own lives. But Jesus tells us, whoever tries to preserve their life will lose it and whoever loses their life will preserve it. See, to surrender to Jesus is not defeat, but is victory. And we can share in that victory when we give our lives to Jesus. Even though if we want to be in control, we cannot save ourselves. We can't. Now, we can be in control of our own lives. God gives us that option. It's possible, but it's not the right option to choose if we want to be in relationship with Jesus Christ and, and to have a great life here and now and also get to share in that life eternal. So we like to be in control, and surrendering control can be difficult. But giving control of your life to God results in the best possible life. Here maybe we're getting into a little bit of also matters of predestination and free will with fate. Or do you believe in fate or not? Are things going to happen? Or do you have the ability to choose and to be in control and all those kinds of things? And personally, I'm on the free will side as a good Wesleyan Methodist theologian should be. I, I, I'm on that, that side of free will that individual salvation is a personal choice of free will and we can choose to accept that or we can choose to reject that we can choose to give control over to god or we can choose to remain in control of our own lives but remaining in control does not lead to the best life and we want to be in control and sometimes surrender can be difficult but it's what we need to do because we cannot have two masters we can't have say god you're in control of my life but I'm also going to be in control of my life. And some parts over here, and maybe you get some of these parts here. And No, no, all or nothing, hot or cold, to not be lukewarm. 
sometimes we don't like that idea of fakes. We want to be in control, but I'm not sure how much control we truly have anyway about, at least in regards to things that happen in our lives. So many times that's out of our control. There are some things uh, that, that we do have control over, and I think that personal salvation choice is one of those um in choosing to do that and to follow God leads to the best life, leads to what is truly life. Uh, uh, so so you may not like the idea of fate, or you may like that idea of fate, but you may want to be in control. But the best life is surrendering that control to God. So I think I, I, I relate with Neil at some points. I want to be in control of my life. I want things how I want them and when I want them. And and, and it's just a daily surrender, a daily crucifying myself to Christ so that he can be in control, so that his will can be done instead of mine. And, and that leads to having the best life when we follow God that way. So I think that's an interesting thing that Neo says and, and can lead to that interesting discussion, which is why I love this podcast and this idea, because that's such an interesting discussion that is used through the vehicle of science fiction. And I personally think it's great. But we'll get back to the movie. And Morpheus says he understands Neo not liking the idea of not being in control. And he tells Neo, let me tell you why you are here. You have come because you know something. What you know you can't explain, but you feel it. You've felt it your whole life. Felt that something is wrong with the world. You don't know what, but it's there like a splinter in your mind. Driving you mad. It is the feeling that brought you to me. Do you know what I'm talking about? For Neo, what is wrong with the world is the Matrix. The life that he is living is not a life in the real world, but a life in a computer-simulated reality, which is what the Matrix is. So in this world of the Matrix, the overwhelming majority of humans, over 99%, maybe over 99.9%, are held captive uh, in the Matrix by their robot overlords. So the Matrix is what is wrong with this world, according to Neo. The idea might be uh, some. This idea too might be something you can relate to. Maybe when Morpheus is saying those things, the, something is just wrong with the world. Maybe that's something that you can relate to. Maybe it just feels like there's something that's holding humans captive. That something in this world is not the way that it should be. For Neo, what is wrong with the world is the Matrix. For Jesus, what is wrong with the world is sin. We live in a world that all humans are held, held captive by sin uh, and, until they're forgiven and set free from the, the, the hold and bondage of sin, and that only happens through Jesus Christ. only happens through the birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. And accepting his invitation to forgiveness and relationship and adoption into God's family. Neo is dealing with a problem of robot captivity, Jesus is dealing with a problem of sin captivity. They both want to set people free. It's a great analogy between Jesus and Neo here, I think. They both want to set people free. They both know that there is something wrong in this world. And they both want to do something about it. So Morpheus explains that the Matrix is everywhere. That you can feel it in a number of places. Even when you go to church is one of the places that he lists. It is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. And Neo asks, what truth? And Morpheus responds that you are a slave, Neo. Like everyone else, you were born into bondage, kept inside a prison that you cannot smell, 
taste, or touch, a prison of the mind. Morpheus is telling Neo this in regards to him being in the Matrix. However, what Morpheus is saying also rings true theologically when we look at the doctrine of original sin. So, so Neo here is born into the Matrix. It is a prison for his mind. But we are all born into sin. A prison not just of our mind, but also a prison of our body and a prison of our soul. We are born with a sin nature. That, that, that is part of what the doctrine of original sin states, that each and every human is born with a sin nature, with sinful desires and sinful wishes. Psalm 51, 5 states, Yes, I was born in guilt, in sin, from the moment my mother conceived me. All humans are born with a sin condition. People have a sinful nature within them from, according to the psalmist, the time of their conception. You, me, all of us were born in the desert of sin. We all have a tendency to sin that is innate within all human beings, and that is what the doctrine of original sin states. And it's part of uh, who we are as people as a result of the fall when Adam and Eve eat from the forbidden tree in the garden and sin enters the world. It's called the fall. Now, in his book, Blue Like Jazz, author Donald Miller, um, and, and just a side note here, I can't support or endorse everything that's in the book Blue Like Jazz, but I really like this one part that Donald Miller points out that the fall is the birth of conflict. So the conflict that we feel between us and God, the conflict that we feel even within ourselves, and the conflict that we feel with others is a result of the fall and original sin. I really like that idea uh, and it being explained that way. In Romans 5.12 we read, Just as through one human being sin came into the world, and death came through sin, so death has come to everyone, since everyone has sinned. We all have sin. We are all born with a sin nature within us. We are all slaves. We were born in bondage, like Morpheus says. He's talking about the matrix, but in reality, we're held bondage to sin. We're enslaved in sin, not in the matrix. And I really like this analogy. And the more I think about it, the matrix and sin have, different, have even more similarities with them. And we're going to get to that even in a little bit and, and, and see that a little bit more that some of those similarities might be. So, so do you have something within you that just says the world isn't the way that it should be? Well, why is that? It's because we live in a fallen world that has sin. Well, next Morpheus tells Neo that no one can be told what the matrix is. They must experience it for themselves. And perhaps the most well-known or, or perhaps maybe one of the, uh, uh, at the very least, the most referenced um, parts of the movie takes place. Morpheus presents Neo with the blue pill or the red pill. And he says, you take the blue pill, the story ends. You wake in your bed and you believe whatever you want to believe, but you take the red pill and you stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Yet another Alice in Wonderland reference. But Neo chooses the red pill. And as Neo is reaching for the red pill and we see the reflection of Morpheus' glasses, his sunglasses, uh, Morpheus says to him, Remember, all I'm offering is the truth, nothing more. And that's also what I seek to do on this podcast, to offer the truth, nothing more. The pill Neo took is part of a tracing program that enables him to be released from the chamber that his body is held in in the real world. So Neo wakes up in a pod full of liquid in the real world, and he has tubes down his throat and tubes suck into his body, 
and, and he breaks free from this pod and, and looks around. And as far as he can see, there are these same pods where there are what looks like just millions and millions of people in these pods that are being harvested for their energy. So he's flushed from this pod because he's no longer used to the machines because he's been disconnected from, because of the pill that he took. Uh, so he gets flushed from the pod and goes down into a, a chamber of water. And uh, Morpheus and his crew, who are in the real world, they have their tracking device in him with the pill. Uh, they know where uh, Neo is, and, and so, so they're there ready to pull him out of the water. And and one cannot help but wonder, as Neo goes under the water after he gets flushed from this pod, one cannot wonder uh, if he is pulled up from this water, and he's pulled up with like a claw from one of those grabber games at the the supermarket that you see where you try to get stuff to animals. This is this great big claw that comes down and grabs him and pulls him up out of the water and the, it pulls him up into a bright light. One cannot help wonder if that's supposed to be a reference to baptism. Neo falls in the water and then he comes out and comes into a bright light. I'm not sure about this, but I think the poten- potential for it is there. Um, this would be a little out of order because Neo's temptation has already happened. Um, but... Jesus's temptation didn't happen until after he was baptized, so there's some timeline discrepancies. Nonetheless, I, I think it's worth mentioning it uh, as the symbolism of baptism seems to be pretty, uh, pretty evident there. But as Neo is taken up from the water, he's taken up into the the ship with Morpheus and, and where the rest of the crew is in. Now at this point, Neo doesn't know who he is. He's still trying to figure that out. Some have also suggested that when Jesus was baptized, that's when it's revealed to him who he is. So that Jesus didn't know who he was before the baptism. Or others have suggested that Jesus' baptism is when God adopted him as his son and that he wasn't God's son before this. Both of those ideas are wrong. The, The latter worse than the former, but both of them are wrong nonetheless. First, we see that Jesus, as a young boy, knows that he's the son of God when his parents find him in the temple and the teachers are asking him questions and they're astonished at what he knows. You can find that in Luke 2. Jesus' parents um, don't know where he is. They're traveling home back from Jerusalem and they end up having to go back to Jerusalem because Jesus has stayed there in the temples. Uh, He knows who he is before he's baptized. He does not learn it at that moment. That's not when some new knowledge is revealed to him. But even more problematic is the idea that Jesus was adopted by God as his son at his baptism, and Jesus was not the son before that. Um, the biggest problem with this is that Jesus, if Jesus wasn't the son of God before this moment, then he's not truly divine. If Jesus has not always existed, he is not God. So that's a problem. If Jesus was just a normal human being that was filled with the Spirit of God in some kind of way, um at his baptism and, and something was done in a different way than had never been done before, uh, then Jesus is not fully divine. And Jesus needs to be both fully divine and fully human coming together, those those two natures coming together in one person. He needs to be able to do that to intermediate on behalf of both people and God because he is fully human and fully God. Jesus is the eternal Son of God. The eternal Son of God. He has always been. So he takes 
he 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 comes as God and 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 comes to earth as human where the again those two natures fully God and fully human come together in the one person of Jesus. He is whatever it means to be human, that's what Jesus is. Whatever it means to be divine, that's what Jesus is. Those two natures coming together in that one person. But for this point, I, I think it's worth mentioning the point here that Jesus is the eternal Son of God. And and what's called the Athanasius Creed. Now, you may have heard that word creed before. Creed is just a statement of belief. So here is something that we believe about this. And Athanasius was a church father who lived a long time ago who was awesome. One of my favorite ones, probably my probably my favorite one of the church fathers who lived um, you know, 1,700 years ago or, or thereabouts. Um, <clears throat> but there's a creed um, that, that he did not write but was made and given his name. But anyway, the Athanasius Creed in part says, the Father, this is what it says about God, the Father uncreated, the Son uncreated, the Holy Spirit uncreated, the Father unlimited, the Son unlimited, the Holy Spirit unlimited, the Father eternal, the Son eternal, and the Holy Spirit eternal. And yet they are not three eternals, but one eternal. Again, this comes back to the most important question in theology. Who is God? God is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all uncreated, all unlimited, all eternal. And the creed continues uh, in, in, in part. I'm not going to read all the creed. It's, it's a rather lengthy one. Um, for the sake of, the sake of trying to stay on track in time, we're just going to uh, read some of this. But here's what more the Athanasius Creed says. Furthermore, it is necessary to everlasting salvation that he also believe faithfully the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. So if someone wants to have everlasting salvation, they need to believe faithfully the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. For the right faith that we believe and confess, that our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is God and human, God of the substance of the Father, perfect God and perfect human, of a reasonable soul and human flesh subsisting, equal to the Father as touching his Godhead, who, although he is God and human, he is not two, but one Christ. One, not by conversion of the Godhead into the flesh, but by the assumption of the manhood or the person, the humanness, into God. Jesus is eternal. There was never a time when Jesus was not. That may be hard for us to understand as temporal beings when we think of things being eternal, but the eternal reality of Jesus is a fact nonetheless. So there are some, so Jesus knows who he is. He's not trying to figure that out. He's not trying to live in it. He's not trying to find his own path. He knows who he is. And in that way, he's a little bit different than Neo, who's trying to figure this all out. Uh, and, and when it comes to his baptism and some of those ideas around his baptism, I just thought that it was worth mentioning here with that allusion to Neo being pulled up out of those waters uh, as he is baptized. But Jesus is the incarnation. Whatever it means to be human, that's what Jesus is. Whatever it means to be God, that's what Jesus is, fully human, fully divine, the unique one son of God. So back to the movie, and we see Morpheus tell Trinity, that uh, Morpheus knows that we have found him. We no longer have to hope because we know that he is here. And then Neo starts a long road to recovery because his muscles are atrophied. He's never truly used his muscles in the real world. 
and his eyes also hurt because he's never truly used his eyes before to see either. So Morpheus starts to tell Neo the truth about everything and about what's going on. And once he is strong enough, Morpheus tells Neo that the year is really 2199 or thereabouts instead of 1999. And uh, so they're a little later in the future than they think they are. And then Neo meets the whole crew. Some of them uh, have been released from the Matrix, just as Neo was. Uh, Tank and Dozer, though, uh, two other characters, are are not. They were not born and created by the machines and and born into the Matrix uh, for their their energy, but they were made the old-fashioned way. They're they're humans, uh, not created by by the machines uh, in that way. So, uh, a couple. Some people born and plugged into the Matrix and people who were born not plugged into it. Uh, and then Neo also officially meets Cypher for the first time and Cypher is going to be an important person and play into that. And, and my guess is if you're listening to this and familiar with the story of Jesus, that you know who Cypher is, what similarities he has within the story of Jesus. But anyway, we'll get to it. Uh, then Morpheus and Neo get plugged into a computer program they call the Construct. Their loading program before they go into the matrix, and here they can get anything they need, whether it's equipment or weapons, or they can do training simulations. They can download information into their minds instantaneously to be able to fly a helicopter or whatever it may be. Uh, so, so Neo and Morpheus are inside a computer program. They get plugged into it, and then Neo touches a chair and asks, "This isn't real." And Morpheus replies, what is real? How do we define real? If you're talking about what you can feel, what you can smell, and what you can taste and see, then real is simply electrical signal interpreted by your brain. So back again, we go to Plato and his caves and to the shadows and to simulacra and simulation and asking this question, what is real? In Miriam Lich's book, Philosophy Through Film, she discusses the Matrix in Plato, Plato's cave in the chapter on skepticism. Can we really trust our senses? Can we really know what is real? These are questions that Plato asks with his cave, and the Matrix also explores, is what she writes about. But we can see here from this, the Matrix explores so much more than that. Then Morpheus tells Neo that the Matrix is a neuroactive simulation. And he shows Neo the world of today, that world of 2199 or thereabouts, and how all mankind celebrated the birth of artificial intelligence or AI. However, as often is the case within science fiction films, books, movies, TV shows, etc., the AI went rogue, so the humans started a war, and the humans ended up scorching the sky, blocking out the sun, because... The artificial intelligence was dependent upon solar power. But the AI used people as power sources because they no longer had the sun. So the energy from human bodies are uh, human bodies are, are made or grown by the AI and um, plugged into different things that will harvest their energy so that the machines can get energy from people to be able to continue to run. So essentially what people are, in the matrix, uh, within the matrix world that are plugged in to the matrix, they are batteries, uh, a source of energy. But Neo refuses to believe. And Morpheus apologizes to Neo here, saying that he wasn't supposed to free him because he was too old, but he had to. And then Morpheus says, as long as the matrix exists, the human race will never be free. Again, 
Here's where we come to looking and seeing the similarities between the matrix and sin. As long as sin exists, people will never be free. Perhaps the matrix really is just that metaphor or analogy for sin. I think I could do a whole episode just about that idea as we see that again here uh, within the matrix being a metaphor for sin. Sin is like the matrix that some people are living in it, but some people have been set free. We don't have to be held in bondage and captivity to it. You can be set free. There is freedom from sin in Jesus Christ. But there will also be a day when there will be no more sin. And people will once and for all be set free. But that only happens through that saving relationship with Jesus Christ. So just as Neo overcomes the matrix at the end, Jesus overcomes sin and can set people free from their bondage and captivity. I really like this idea of the matrix being a metaphor for sin. As long as it exists... There's going to be people that are going to be held in captivity. As long as sin exists, people will never truly be free. Unless they turn to that personal relationship with Jesus Christ and can get that freedom from that. But not everyone turns to Jesus and sin continues to entangle and snare people and hold them captive. But there is a way to be set free. And again, it comes down to surrendering control of your life to Jesus and allowing him to do something within you that you can't do for yourself. Because no matter how much you want to be in control, You cannot save yourself. You just can't do it. And surrendering control to Jesus leads to the best possible life, not just now, but in the life to come. It leads to freedom, to wholeness, to completeness. Jesus offers so much. Uh, To to be able to overcome this world and what we're held in captivity and bondage to. Forgiveness and freedom from sin are possible. But you don't have to be defined by your mistakes of the past or your failures or what you've done but you can have a new definition as a as a son or daughter of the living god of the universe that's what jesus offers to us but we are captured we are ensnared in this thing called sin just as people within the matrix are captured ensnared within the machine i think there's a great analogy there maybe even some more we can unpack later on maybe in a different episode because um, we may need to, to dive in uh, uh, dive in a little deeper and some more things maybe later on. But anyway, moving on in the Matrix uh, for the movie, Morpheus explains that when the Matrix was first built, there was a man born inside that had the ability to change what he wanted to re- remake the Matrix as he saw fit. It was this man that freed the first of us and taught us the truth. As long as the Matrix exists, the human race will never be free. Continuing, Morpheus says, when he died, the oracle prophesied his return and envisioned that his coming would hail the destruction of the Matrix, an end to the war and freedom for our people. That is why there are those of us that have spent our entire lives searching the Matrix, looking for him. I did what I did because I believe the search is over. So Morpheus believes that Neo is the one who has come is this man who could control things within the matrix that has come back. So there are some similarities here with Jesus, but also some some differences. So if Neo is the second coming of this man who was born with the ability to change the matrix, he is similar to Jesus and that Jesus is also going to return to earth. Jesus has not done that yet, but he will. Um, however, Jesus himself is going to come back. Not some reincarnation of a previous savior, or as it seems to be the case with Neo. 
So Neo is coming back. Um, so so this man who could change things within the Matrix has now come back as Neo. He's not the same person. He doesn't have those same memories. He doesn't remember who he was before. He he is a, a, a I think for lack of a better term, a reincarnation of this original person who could change things within the Matrix. So Neo hasn't come back as that person, but he's come back as Neo. That's not how it works with Jesus. Jesus is still Jesus, and it's going to be the Jesus who left Earth who's going to return to Earth uh, in what is often referred to as the second coming. And we read about this in Scripture in several places. We're going to look at a couple right now with Matthew 24, verses 30 and 31, and then verse 42. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. At that time, all the tribes of the earth will be full of sadness, and they will see the Son of Man coming in the heavenly clouds with power and great splendor. He will send his angels with sound and great trumpet, and they will gather his chosen ones from the four corners of the earth, from one end of the sky to the other. Therefore, stay alert. You don't know what day the Lord is coming. Jesus will return. And then in Acts 1, 9 through 11, we read this. After Jesus said these things, as they were watching, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going away, as they were staring toward heaven, suddenly two men in white robes stood next to them. And they said, Galileans, why are you standing here looking towards heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way that you saw him go into heaven. There are others, and we could be here again all day if we want to discuss that and, and, and Jesus' return and what all that means. But I, th- I think that's kind of as far as we need to go now to see the point that this, the Jesus who left earth is going to be the same Jesus who is going to return to earth. There's also something else that's mentioning, worth mentioning here within the Matrix in the movie. Morpheus tells the prophecy from the oracle of this return of the man who could control the Matrix. So he talks of prophecy and prophecy of the one or the savior, the one who's going to set them free uh, coming back. And there are many prophecies about the Messiah coming to earth in the Old Testament. Uh, the, these prophecies written hundreds of years, some thousands of years before Jesus was born. So the Old Testament contains dozens and dozens of prophecies uh, and hundreds of verses about the coming of the Messiah. Here's an article, part of an article, written by Dr. Walter C. Kaiser, Jr., regarding the Old Testament prophecies that Jesus fulfills, and this was found on gordonconwell.edu. And here's part of the article that we read here about Jesus and uh, the, the prophecies that he fulfills in coming. Eve was promised in Genesis 3.15 that a male descendant from her line would crush the head of the serpent, that is, the devil himself, and win completely over evil as the prince of evil, Satan, would finally be vanquished. And from the line of Judah, the Messiah would descend, Genesis 49.8-12. In fact, this coming one from Judah would be a star that would come out of Jacob, a scepter that would rise out of Israel, Numbers 24.17. Moreover, the Messiah, who would come and who would come, would also be a prophet. Deuteronomy eight fifteen, as well as a king. Psalm seventy two. He is seen as the anointed one in First Samuel two, one through ten, and the faithful priest in First Samuel two thirty five through thirty six. 
But the most outstanding text by far is the Davidic covenant texts found in 2 Samuel 7, repeated in 1 Chronicles 17, and elaborated on in Psalm 132, which pointed to the destiny, or the, excuse me, pointed to the dynasty or house of David as the place where God would originate his throne, his throne, dynasty, and kingdom forever. Eleven psalms celebrate the person and work of the coming Messiah, but even though he would be rejected, Psalm 118, and betrayed, Psalm 69 and 109, die and be resurrected, Psalm 22 and 16. He would come as conqueror and enthroned ruler, Psalm 2 and 110, as planner and groom, Psalm 40 and 45, and as triumphant king, Psalm 68 and 72. There are some 39 predictions of the Messiah in the Old Testament prophets. First, it was predicted the Messiah would be born of a virgin in Isaiah 7:14. His birthplace would be Bethlehem, Micah 5, 2, and John the Baptist would be his forerunner, Isaiah 43 through 5, and Malachi 3, 1. It was further announced ahead of time that Jesus would enter Jerusalem in triumph as, in, in triumph as the crowd shouted Hosanna in Zechariah 9, 9 through 10, Psalm 118, 25 through 36. But in less than a week, he would be betrayed by one of his own disciples, Judas, as it turned out, Psalm 69, 25. The Messiah's side would be pierced, Zechariah 12:10, and he would suffer vicariously for the sins of the world, Isaiah 53, verses 6, 9, and 12. Even more dramatically accurate was the fact that Jesus would be killed with the wicked ones, Isaiah 53, 9, yet he would be buried with the rich one, Isaiah 53, 9. Jesus fulfills the prophecies regarding the, old, the Messiah in the Old Testament. Jesus is the Messiah. All the prophecies that are written about the Messiah in the Old Testament, Jesus fulfills them. Just like Neo fulfills the prophecy that's given uh, by the oracle in the Matrix. Jesus is that fulfillment of prophecy. It's something that's amazing and has to be directed. Something that doesn't just simply happen by chance of somebody fulfilling dozens and dozens of things that were written about them hundreds of years before their birth. Those things don't just happen by chance. Those things don't just happen by luck. Those things happen with intention and purpose and direction behind them. And we can see that God has been at work for a long time. Um, and I think that's just one of the really cool ways we can see that through the scriptures and can trust in the scriptures and what they've said, that they have been true, that what has been written hundreds of years before the events came true and all of them came true, that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the fulfillment of prophecy just as Neo appears to be the fulfillment of the prophecy here of the oracle of this man returning who can change things within the matrix. So next, Tank, a member of the crew, talks about how Zion is the last human city on Earth. And some people really seem to get caught up with this idea of Zion. In their book, Reviewing the Movies, A Christian Response to Contemporary Film, Peter Frazier and Vernon Edwin Neal briefly mention Christian references throughout the film like the name of the sanctuary city for refugees being Zion. That's really kind of all they really mention about the Matrix, though, which is a little bit disappointing. There's so much more to discuss about the Matrix and the theological themes and ideas within them. And I think that's just another reason that I saw for this podcast to really dive into the works of film and works of books and to get in-depth and look at theological themes as, as we examine the beautiful genre of science fiction. So 
So I, I love this idea, this deep dive. I'm so glad you joined with me on it again as we journey together. So sorry for that tangent. We'll get back to the movie. Uh, but Zion in the Bible is used to refer either to as a literal place where Jerusalem is today or to refer to even Israel as a whole. So either Jerusalem or to refer to as, as Israel. Uh, Zion is not used very often in the New Testament, but has frequently been used in Christian literature and hymns as uh, the designation for the heavenly city, um, for heaven, or for the earth, either the, the heavenly city of God or the earthly city of God. It kind of does both at some points. So in the book Beyond the Matrix, Stephen Fowler writes that Zion is biblically regarded as the city of God. In the book, Philosophers Explore the Matrix, uh, says that the last remaining human city, Zion, is synonymous in Judaism and Christianity with the heavenly Jerusalem. So clearly, Zion is another way in which the Matrix alludes to Christian themes, although it's a small way compared to the rest of the film. But this idea of this human city, the last city being Zion, maybe there's also some idea within it being God's city. Uh, the, the the city of God, where God would be. Uh, maybe there's some allusion to that. Uh, but next, Neo begins his training in the film, and he instantly learns multiple fighting styles just get downloaded instantly within the snap of the fingers. He learns Savante and Jujitsu and Kenpo and Drunken boxing, boxing. So Neo and Morpheus fight. And Neo in his white gi... I believe that's what it's called, that karate uniform, his gi. Uh, he is in a white gi, and I'm sure that's symbolic, is white is the color of purity. So I'm sure that there is some symbolism there. And he and Morpheus fight, and again, another great fight scene, and just beautiful with the cinematography of it. But then the jump program is loaded. And Morpheus runs from one building and he jumps to another building that's hundreds of feet away, and then it's Neo's turn to try. And everyone's there, the crew is watching, is he actually going to make it? Because nobody makes the first jump. Nobody can suspend reality enough in their mind to believe that this is just a computer program where you can jump hundreds of feet because you're not in the real world, because it seems so real. It's such a good simulation that it seems so real. But Neo, just like everyone else doesn't make his first jump. He falls onto the concrete below, which gives once, and uh, we'll get to that, though. But th there's So there's a difference here between Jesus and Neo. Again, Neo's trying to figure out who he is. Jesus knows who he is. In John 13, 3, we read this. Jesus knew the Father, had given everything into his hands, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. Again, Neo trying to find out who he is. Jesus has always known who he is. And we see that <clears throat> as we've discussed earlier. So following on in the Matrix, we have an important point. Neo doesn't make the jump. Falls hundreds of feet on the pavement. The pavement absorbs his fall uh, so he doesn't die. But then he, do he does get a bloody lip from it um, in the computer program. And when he's unplugged and goes back to the real world, he feels his lip and looks at it and there's blood on his finger. And Neo says, I thought it wasn't real. But Morpheus says, your mind makes it real. And then Neo asks, if you're killed in the Matrix, do you die here? And Morpheus says, the body cannot live without the mind. So we learn that if you die in the Matrix, you also die in the real world. Remember this for later. This is important. 
And then Trinity and Cypher have an interesting conversation in the hallway outside Neo's room where Cypher says that there's something different about him, isn't there? And Trinity asks Cypher if he's a believer now, indicating that at some point Cypher wasn't so sure if Neo was the one. And then there's another very well-known scene within the Matrix that takes place. The woman in the red dress. So Neo and Morpheus are walking through a crowded street, and on this crowded street, everyone is wearing black and white or gray, kind of very, very muted colors, looking very, very dull with their, their outfits, just in those, those colors. And then a woman in a red dress walks by, and Neo sees her. She catches Neo's eye. And then when he looks back at her again, she's an agent. So in the Matrix, anyone who's not unplugged from the Matrix can be taken over by an agent. And it's just a program. They weren't really in the Matrix. They're just making the point here to Neo that, hey, anybody, almost anybody can be an agent. So an, an agent could not take over Neo's body now because Neo's been unplugged from the Matrix and is plugging himself back in. So it's somebody who who's never been unplugged that the the agents can take over their um, their bodies at any point. So the agents are everyone, and they are no one. And then Morpheus says also, uh, you have to understand that most of these people are not ready to be unplugged, that many of them are so ignored, so hopelessly dependent on the system, that they will fight to protect it. Morpheus tells Neo that everyone who has ever fought an agent has been killed. But he says that with Neo, that will be different. And Neo asks why. And Morpheus says, I've seen an agent punch through a concrete wall. Men have emptied entire clips at them and hit nothing but air. Yet their strength and their speed are still based on a world that is built by rules. Because of that, they will never be as strong or as fast as you can be. And Neo says, what? Are you telling me that I can dodge bullets? And Morpheus says, no, Neo. I'm trying to tell you that when you're ready, you won't have to. Remember that again for later, too. They have to leave the Matrix quick because there's a Sentinel in the real world that is a search-and-destroy Sentinel that's trying to disable their ship and kill them in the real world, so they have to get out of the Matrix, and then they land the ship successfully and hide. Then Neo and Cypher have a late-night conversation where Cypher tells Neo that it must be a mind job to be told that you're the one who has to save the world. And then he tell, gives Neo some advice. He tells him that if you see an agent, do the same thing that they all do. Run. Then in the next scene, we see Cypher sitting down to a steak dinner with an agent. Apparently, Cypher doesn't run when he sees an agent. Cypher says that he has realized that ignorance is bliss. And then Agent Smith says, then we have a deal. Cypher says, I don't want to remember nothing, nothing you understand. And I want to be rich. Someone important, like an actor. It's kind of funny. That's a pretty good line there by Cypher or Joe Pantoliano, who, who plays his part great. Uh, I appreciate Joe Pantoliano and many of his parts because he's a really talented, uh, talented actor. And then Agent Smith says, whatever you want, Mr. Reagan. Cypher says, all right, you get my body back in a power plant, reinsert me in the Matrix, and I'll get you what you want. Agent Smith wants access codes to the Zion mainframe. Cypher doesn't know them, but he tells them that he can get them someone who does. Morpheus. This scene parallels Judas. And we read this uh, account 
in Matthew 26, verses 14 through 16. Then one of the twelve, who was called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, What will you give me if I turn Jesus over to you? They paid him thirty pieces of silver, and from that time on, he was looking for an opportunity to turn Jesus in. Cypher's 30 pieces of silver is being plugged back into the matrix and living the life of someone who is rich and famous while he gains back his ignorance regarding the real world. Now, this is not exact parallels. Judah betrays Jesus, and Cypher is not directly betraying Neo. He's betraying Morpheus more specifically. But really, as it turns out, he's betraying everyone. Um, and, and Judas betrays everyone as well, I guess you could say. He be- betrays all of them and, and turns Jesus in. His, his betrayal particularly is towards Jesus, though. Cypher's betrayal here is, is, is more towards Morpheus. But there's a similarity here uh, between the meeting of Cypher and the agents and Judas meeting with the chief priests. Cypher is Judas within the Matrix. The one who is in the inner circle and yet betrays those who are also in that circle. So we have Neo, who is a Christ figure, and then we also have someone who betrays, the, the who, who, who is a betrayer, who is within that inner circle, and that is Cypher, who mirrors what, Jesus, what, what Judas does in the Gospels. So back on the ship, and it's presumably it's the next morning, there's a conversation during breakfast. And Mouse, another member of the crew, says to Neo, so what did you think of her? And Neo says, of who? And Mouse says, the woman in the red dress. I designed her. She doesn't talk too much, but if you'd like, you know, to meet her, I can arrange a more personalized milieu. Switch says, the digital pimp. Hard at work. And Mouse replies with this. He says, pay no attention to these hypocrites, Neo. To deny our impulses is to deny the very thing that makes us human. And here what we have is a great misunderstanding of what it is that makes us human. There's a great misunderstanding here of what it is that makes us truly human. And I'll try to be brief here, but I'm not going to be. We're going to go a little off track with this because I feel like I could devote an entire episode to this one line alone. This great misunderstanding that to deny our impulses is to deny the very thing that makes us human. So here we're going to dive into a little bit what's called anthropology. And anthropology, according to the Google machine, is the study of human societies and cultures and their development. But when we look at anthropology within theology, we are referring to what the Bible teaches about humanity. Here specifically, we'll be looking at what the scriptures teach us about what does it mean to be human? What makes a person a person? What, what, what is it that makes us human? Is Mouse right? Is it true that to deny our impulses is to deny the very thing that makes us human? Well, to be human is to be more than being a sinful creature. And, and, and if we live, as we've talked about, in the doctrine of original sin, if we all have this innate desire within us to, to sin, that, that is born within us, that, that we have to, to do what we want, when we want, and to sin. And if that is the impulse that we have to accept that, is that what makes us human? No. No, of course not, because we are fallen. 
So we have that within us. We have those sinful impulses and desires within us. And when we deny those things, we're not denying what makes us human. We're not denying that at all. As a matter of fact, it might be the other way around. When we deny those impulses, maybe we're accepting what makes us human more than than not. So to be human is to be more than a, a sinful creature. And we need to remember that Humans are, are made in the image and likeness of God. That was the original intention, to be made in the image of likeness of God. The fall comes later. The sin comes later. And if we take a quick glance through Paul's New Testament letters where he mentions the flesh, which we unquestionably do not have time to get into, that would be an episode or four, uh, to understand what Paul says about the, the end of, about flesh. Uh, but Miles is not right. Because it's not our sins, it's not our impulses that make us human. So to deny those things is not to deny what makes us human. Giving into sin, giving into those sinful desires and impulses does not make us human, but what does? Well, um, Paul uses the word flesh in many ways, but for our discussion here and some of these verses that we will look at, uh, Paul, when he uses the word flesh, it will be for the, the sinful nature, or those sinful desires that we have within us. So the first passage uh, that we're going to look at could be a direct answer to the question that Mouse asks. And essentially what Mouse is talking about, let's get honest here, let's get real, Mouse is talking about sex, right? And, and so is Switch when he calls Mouse a, a, a digital pimp. And, and when Mouse is offering Neo a chance to spend a little more time with that girl in the red dress we all know what that alone time is for that personalized malayu. we know we know what that is for here we're talking about sex and uh so then the conversation uh yeah that that what, what mouse is asking is i think we can logically conclude from the context that is there that, that essentially what mouse is talking about is sexual impulses so he seems to be saying that to deny sexual impulse is to deny what makes us human. To this, Paul says in Romans 13, verses 13 through 14, Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh, make no provision for the sinful nature, make no provision to gratify its desires. The Christian response is to make no provision for the flesh. Do not gratify its desires, or I believe we could say do not gratify its impulses. Denying our sexual impulses caused by our sinful nature is not to deny our humanity, and please do not misunderstand me here. That's not to say that, that all sexual impulses are sin. That's not to say that at all. Well, that's not even to say that sex is sin, that, that God designed sex, and sex is beautiful, and it is wonderful if it is done within the way that, that God gives instructions for it to be done. God does not tell us, just go indulge in all of those impulses whenever you get them, no matter what or however it's going. No, 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 that is not what we're supposed to do. We can follow this God's way, and those impulses can be fulfilled when we're following these through God's way. But, but we have to deny our impulses that come that do not follow God's way. So God's way is is best in, in sex or impulses. Those things are not sinful when they are done in God's way and fulfilled 
in the way that God says that they should be fulfilled. It's that what Mao seems to be saying is, yeah, but if you deny that, if you, if you just see that woman in that red dress and you want to have sex with her, I can set that up for you. But if you deny that, you're going to deny what makes you human. That's a misunderstanding of what it is that truly makes us human. So Paul reinforces this idea also in Galatians 5, 16 through 21, where we read, So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery. Idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissension, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. People were made to be in relation with God. People were made in the image and likeness of God. And giving in to our fallen sinful human human our, our sinful impulses does damage to our relationship with god it also does damage to our relationship with ourselves and it does damage to our relationship with others so when we do not deny these impulses it does damage to relationships to god to ourselves to others so to deny these impulses is not to deny what makes us human To deny them is to deny sin, and to deny sin may be a part of what brings us to actually be truly human. Let's listen to another writing from Paul in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in 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 which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind. And we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of humankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So at the coming age, he might show the immeasurable richness, riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And not as your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of work so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You are God's workmanship, or some translations say you are God's accomplishment. You were created to live in relationship with Jesus Christ and to do good works for him and to do his will and and to make good spread throughout the earth and and, and to be in, in not in a, to be in a healthy relationship with God and with yourself and and with others. And when we do that, that is what it is to be truly human. Giving into your own sinful desires and impulses is not what makes us truly human. Following God's way is what makes us truly human. As a matter of fact, I, I would argue that to deny our impulses is to be more human. 
than to give in to them. To deny those sinful impulses is to be more human. I really like that idea, and I think that's something that we could discuss more. And a little bit of a spoiler here and something to look forward to if you want to know and understand more about what this idea of truly human is and what that means and living the human life to the fullest, we'll get to Philip K. Dick. And Philip K. Dick, in his writings, asks, better than anyone I've ever seen, what is it that makes us truly human? He never gets to the right answer, but he asks that question better than anyone I've ever seen. And when we look at his book later this first season, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? the book that Blade Runner, the movie, was based off of. We will be looking and asking that question. So that's just a preview and a, a plug for a further uh, episode later on this season coming in 2022. But next, uh, Morpheus, back to the movie in Matrix. Next, Morpheus tells everyone that he's taking Neo to see the Oracle. But on the way to the car, once they are in the Matrix, Cypher is there, and he makes a phone call and then drops that ringing phone into a garbage can. And Neo and Morpheus, Trinity and Cypher, they go to the Oracle, but Apox, Switch, and Mouse stay behind where they came into the Matrix. So, But only Neo and Morpheus go to see the Oracle. And Morpheus explains this about the Oracle, that she has been with them from the beginning, that she is a guide to help people find the path, and Morpheus told him that Morpheus says that she told him that he would find the one. And this is a clear reference here to John the Baptist. So in John 1, 19 through 28, we read this. This is John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him, Who are you? John confessed. He didn't deny, but he confessed, I'm not the Christ. And they asked him, Then who are you? Are you Elijah? John said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? And John answered, no. They asked, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And John replied, I am a voice crying out in the wilderness. Make the Lord's path straight, just as the prophet Isaiah said. Those sent by the Pharisees asked, why do you baptize if you aren't the Christ or Elijah or the prophet? And John answered, I baptize with water, but someone greater stands among you, whom you don't recognize. He comes after me, but I'm not worthy to untie his sandal straps. This encounter took place across the Jordan and Bethany, where John was baptizing. So some people wonder here in the Matrix, is Morpheus the one? No, Morpheus says he's not, but he's going to find the one. He's going to point to the one. Some people here come to John the Baptist and say, hey, are you the one? But John says, no, I'm not the one. And I'm going to prepare for one. I'm going to point to the one. Just as Morpheus prepares the way and points to Neo, so John the Baptist prepares the way and points to Jesus. And then in Mark 7, Mark 1, 7, John says, one stronger than I am is coming after me. And Neo unquestionably is stronger than Morpheus, and Morpheus knows it. He told him already earlier in this film that when you're ready, you're not going to have to dodge bullets. You're not even going to have to worry about that. And we'll, again, get to that also a little later on. So Morpheus goes before Neo, just as John the Baptist goes before Jesus. So here, uh, within the Matrix, we have Neo, who is a Christ figure, Cypher, who is Judas the betrayer, and Morpheus, who is John the Baptist, pointing the way to the one. So Morpheus um, asks Neo, 
Um, or Morpheus takes Neo to the Oracle's appointment apartment and tells him that he can only show him the door. He can't make him walk through it. So Neo reaches for the handle, but the door opens before he can get there. And a woman says, Neo, you're right on time. Is this free will or fate? Well, that's a question the Oracle and Neo are about to discuss. But first, Neo sits in a room with other people who are called potentials, and they are all children making blocks float in the air or bending spoons with their mind. And again, a very well-known part within the Matrix. There's a child who is bending a spoon uh, and looks at Neo and says, Do not try to bend the spoon. That's impossible. Instead, try to realize the truth. And Neo asks, what truth? And then the line, this child says, there is no spoon. The Oracle then uh, sees Neo and asks him if he thinks he's the one. Neo says he doesn't know. Again, Neo doesn't know who he is. Jesus knows who he is, so a difference there. But she tells him that she isn't the one. She tells him, she tells Neo that he isn't the one. And tells him that he already knows that. The Oracle says that Morpheus believes in Neo so blindly that he will sacrifice his own life to save Neo. She tells him that he will have to make a choice to save Morpheus or to save himself, but one of them will die, and he will have to decide who. And we see an interesting scene where then the Oracle tells Neo not to worry about the vase, and Neo asks what vase as he turns around and knocks the vase off of the table and it breaks. Neo says, how did you know? The Oracle replies, what's really going to bake your noodle later on is, would you still have broken it if I hadn't said anything? That's an interesting question for sure, which again brings up the idea of fate, which we've already discussed briefly, but would Neo have broken the vase if she said nothing, or what determined that he would break the vase, or was he destined to, or I don't know, there's a lot of different questions there um, that we'll never really know the answer to, I guess. But who is the oracle? Some may think the oracle is supposed to be a representation of God, but that just simply cannot be. Uh, first of all, God is not a liar. Um, I would say that the oracle is a prophet, but I don't know if I could say that she's a good prophet because, again, she's a liar. Even though she, according to Morpheus, doesn't necessarily tell you the truth, just what you need to hear. Uh, but there seems to be something within that that seems a bit de uh, a bit deceptive uh, that's in there. So so looking at her, and I'm not sure if she has really any parallels uh, within this story. So Neo tries to tell Morpheus uh, what she said, but Morpheus tells Neo that what she said is for you and for you alone. So then Neo, Trinity, Cypher, and Morpheus get back to the hotel where they came in, and Neo has some deja vu. He sees a black cat go past and then another go past that looks just like it. And we find that deja vu is a glitch in the matrix. It, it happens when something is changed within the matrix. And what has been changed is all the windows and exits are now covered in bricks. So they are trapped. And a SWAT team is storming the hotel, then Mouse gets shot and dies, and since he has died in the Matrix, he also dies in the real world, and then agents are there. So Morpheus calls Tank in the real world and gets the blueprints for the building, and they hide in the walls of this old hotel. And they're in the walls, climbing down, and Cypher has dust and dirt fall on him, and he coughs and sneezes, and then the agents realize that they're hiding in the walls. 
An agent reaches through the wall and grabs Neo, and but Morpheus breaks through the wall, tackles the agent, yells to get Neo out uh, of there. So Trinity pulls Neo down through the wall, and they escape. And then Morpheus and Agent Smith fight, but it's not really much of a fight because Morpheus is quickly and easily defeated, beaten, and taken as prisoner. In the scriptures, John the Baptist is taken prisoner too. Um, John the Baptist is arrested and put in prison because of Herodias, the wife of Herod's brother Philip. Herod had married her, but John said, it's against the law to marry your brother's wife, but he didn't care, so he threw him in jail anyway. Another parallel between John and Morpheus. However, John the Baptist is actually killed in prison, um, but let's continue on to see what happens here with Morpheus. Cypher all of a sudden calls Tank, and uh, Cypher says that he managed to escape, that he managed to get out of there, that he was just fine, and calls Tank and gets uh, goes back in the real world. And then Cypher's betrayal is complete as he shoots both Tank and Dozer with some kind of electric gun, and they are both presumed dead. Then Cypher calls Trinity in the Matrix, and this is what Cypher says. I'm tired, Trinity. I'm tired of this war. I'm tired of fighting. I'm tired of the ship, of being cold, of eating the same goop every day. But most of all, what Cypher says is that he is tired of Morpheus. And then he goes over to Morpheus and yells uh, at, at him as, as Morpheus is, is plugged in the Matrix. You bet you never saw this coming, did you? I wish I could be there when they break you, I wish I could walk in just as it happened. So right then, you'd know it was me. And then Trinity realizes that Cypher is the one who's betrayed them. That he has given them Morpheus. And then Cypher says, he lied to us, Trinity. He tricked us. If he would have told us the truth, we would have told him to shove that red pill somewhere. And then Trinity says, that's not true, Cypher. He set us free. Free, Cypher says. You call this free? All I do is what he tells me to do. If I have to choose between that and the Matrix, I choose the Matrix. And Trinity says, the Matrix isn't real. And then Cypher says, I disagree, Trinity. I think the Matrix can be the most real, can be more real than this world. I mean, all I do is pull a plug here. But there, you have to watch Apoc die. And here Cypher goes a step further than Judas. Cypher kills one of his fellow crew members. As far as we know, Judas is not personally responsible for the murder of anybody. But Cypher pulls the plug on Apoc, and he dies. Then he pulls the plug, and Switch dies, and Trinity curses him. But Cypher says, don't hate me, Trinity. I'm just the messenger, and right now I'm going to prove it to you. If Morpheus was right, then there's no way I can pull this plug is there. If Neo is the one, then the next few seconds... There has to be some kind of miracle to stop me, right? I mean, how can he be the one if he's dead? But then Cypher looks over and sees Tank, who's still alive. He's just been shot and his shoulder's all burned up and it doesn't look too good. But Tank is still alive and he picks up the gun and shoots Cypher with the gun that Cypher used to shoot them and Cypher is killed. Judas also dies, but he takes his own life. In Matthew 27, 3-10, we read that the Jesus, when he is condemned to die, Judas goes back to the priests and has deep regret and tries to return the, the 30 pieces of silver. 
Judas says I did wrong because I betrayed an innocent man. But the the people there say, what's that to us? That's your problem. So Judas threw the 30 pieces of silver in the temple and left and then went and hanged himself. And then they used that money to buy the potter's field so that Judas and others uh, can be buried in that if they need a place to be buried. So let me just say here, though, quickly that suicide and self-harm are not the answers to the problem and not the answer to the problem and difficulties of life. So if you've had thoughts of suicide or self-harm, please seek help. It's okay to seek help. It's okay to go and to get that and to ask. So if you need to call the Suicide Prevention and Hotline at 1-800-273-8255. Again, the Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-8255. Give that a call. If that's what you need to do, that's okay. You can also text the word CONNECT to 4, excuse me, text the word CONNECT to 741-741. Again, you can text the word CONNECT 741-741 from anywhere in the United States at any time about any type of crisis, and they'll get back to you if you prefer to communicate with text instead of talking. So please, if you are having these thoughts, contact these numbers immediately or reach out to someone you know or trust that can get you help that you may need, and it's okay to seek that help. And I know it's a heavy subject, but I feel it needs to be said. And actually, one of the things we're going to discover as we go through works of science fiction is there's a lot of people who deal with this issue, a lot of different characters with, with self-harm or suicide. So this isn't going to be the first time we talk about it, but if you need help, get help. Seek that help that, that is needed and let somebody know. And it's okay to seek help. It's okay to get that. Please do that if you need to. So returning to the movie, Trinity and Neo get out of the Matrix alive. Um, and then we see Agent Smith and Morpheus. Uh, they're in a high-rise tower overlooking what is, I think, New York City uh, with a number of torture devices sitting on the table next to Morpheus, and he is shackled uh, to a chair. And then Agent Smith explains this. Did you know that the first Matrix was designed to be a perfect human world where none suffered, where everyone would be happy. It was a disaster. No one would accept the program. Entire crops were lost. Some believe we lack the programming language to describe your perfect world. But I believe that as a species, human beings define their reality through suffering and misery. The perfect world was a dream that your primitive cerebrum kept trying to wake up from which is why the Matrix was redesigned to this, the peak of your civilization, which happened to be 1999 because the movie was made in 1999. But I feel like I could spend another entire episode going through this monologue by Agent Smith. Here he presents the idea of suffering and misery compared to utopia. But is he right? Is reality defined through suffering and misery? Is that how we as humans know that we are living in the real world because we experience suffering and misery? Man, I don't think so. There has to be more to life than misery and suffering to let us know what we're experiencing is real. But it also makes sense to me that a perfect world may cause problems in the Matrix because everyone has a different idea of what the perfect world would be. My idea of a perfect world might be different than yours. In a computer program, trying to get that for everybody and trying to create that, I'm just not sure that could happen. So utopia could be defined as a state of things in which everything is perfect. But there's also a problem of utopia being found on this earth. It will not 
and cannot be found here right now because we live in a fallen world. So again, it comes back to that idea of you know something's wrong with the world, don't you? We live in a sinful world, a world where utopia will not happen. Not yet. But in Revelation, chapter 21, verses 1 through 8, we read, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the former heaven and the former earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband, and I heard a loud voice from the throne say, Look, God's dwelling is here with with humankind. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death will be no more. There will be no mourning, crying, or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, Look, I'm making all things new. And he also said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And then he said to me, All is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will freely give water from the life-giving spring. To those who emerge victorious will inherit these things. I will be their God, and they will be my sons and daughters. But for the cowardly, the faithful, the faithless, the viles, the murderers, those who commit sexual immorality, those who use drugs and cast spells, the idolaters, and all the liars, their share will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur. This is the second death. There will someday be utopia in the new heaven and the new earth that God creates, but that's for those who are following Jesus. So for those who are not following Jesus, there's going to be eternal consequences. And that will be the opposite of utopia. So there will be utopia one day for those who know Jesus and who are known by Jesus, but we will not truly find it here on this earth. And I believe that's maybe another reason why a utopian idea of the Matrix was rejected. But back on the ship in the real world, Tank explains that they are trying to break Morpheus' mind, like hacking a computer. And they eventually will, is what he says. They want the codes to get Zion's mainframe to destroy people who are unplugged from the Matrix. Tank suggests pulling the plug and killing Morpheus so they won't get the codes. Tank says they have no other choice. But Neo won't allow it. He speaks of the choice the Oracle told him about and tells Neo, and Neo tells Trinity that he's going to save Morpheus. Then... Neo tells Trinity that he isn't the one. And Trinity says, that's not true. That can't be true. But then doesn't tell him why that can't be true. So Neo has to go because he believes he can bring Morpheus back. And Trinity goes with him against the objection of Neo. Trinity still decides to go. So Agent Smith um, talks more to Morpheus and says some more to him. And here's some more of what he says. I'd like to share a revelation that I've had during my time here. It came to me when I tried to classify your species. I've realized that you're not actually mammals. Every mammal on this planet instinctively develops a natural equilibrium with the surrounding environment. But you humans do not. You move to an area and you multiply and multiply until every natural resource is consumed and the only way you can survive is to spread to another area. There is another organism on this planet that follows the same pattern. Do you know what it is? A virus. Human beings are a disease. A cancer on this planet. You are a plague. And we are the cure. 
Again, here we have a misunderstanding of humanity. We've already discussed some of what it means to be human, but what Agent Smith here says is wrong. We are not a virus or a disease or a cancer. Rather, humans are the pinnacle of God's creation. As Genesis 1.27 says, God created humanity in God's own image. In the divine image, God created them, male and female, he created them. We are not a mistake or here by chance. We were created and made to be in relationship with the true and living God. God is the creator and we're here on purpose for a reason. We're not a virus or a cancer. Humans are wonderfully made, the best of God's creation, made in the image and likeness of God. This is a great misunderstanding of what Agent Smith here says of people. Remember that you are God's workmanship. You are God's handiwork. You are the pinnacle, the best of what God has created. Trinity and Neo go into the matrix of a whole lot of guns and they attack the military-grade building that Morpheus is being held captive in and they have a long and loud and extensive firefight with dozens of security guards and armed personnel. And then they eventually um, get up onto the roof of the building and on the roof, Trinity and Neo are fighting and the agents take over one of the soldiers' bodies. And Neo empties two guns firing at the agent, but the agent dodges every bullet. The agent then shoots at Neo and Neo does the same. He dodges bullets from the, the agent. He moves like one of the agents do. Um, and then Trinity comes up and is able to shoot the agent in the head and... Um, and is able to, to, to kill him. So Trinity asks how Neo moved like the agents, and he looks around, and he has a few grazing bullet wounds, and he says, well, I guess it wasn't fast enough. And then there's a helicopter on the roof, and Trinity gets the program of how to fly it downloaded to her, which, is, again, is just awesome. You just need it. It's downloaded in a couple of seconds. And then she flies the helicopter in front of the room where Morpheus is being held. And outside the large plate glass window... Uh, we see the helicopter come up there and the, the helicopter is there and um, Neo is sitting in it and has a minigun and he opens fire with thousands of bullets uh, killing the agents. According to imfdb.com, which is the Internet Movie Firearms Database, which is actually an interesting site, didn't even know it was out there, but it has some interesting information on it, the imfdb, Internet Movie Firearms Database, this was a GEM-134 minigun mounted on a Bell 212 helicopter that was being fired at 3,000 rounds per minute, which is actually half of the maximum rate for the M134. That's crazy. 3,000 rounds a minute, but it's only being shot at half the maximum speed. That is pretty impressive. That's pretty crazy. And that is too many bullets for the, even the agents to avoid. And they are killed, but the agents just take over somebody else's body, as we've already talked about, so they're not really dead. But then Morpheus breaks free from the handcuffs and jumps out the window, and uh, Neo jumps to him. He's attached uh, onto the, the helicopter uh, with, with some sort of rope. Uh, so, so they meet halfway, and Morpheus is saved. But an agent shoots down the helicopter, and Neo and Morpheus are hanging from the strap that's attached to it. Morpheus drops onto a roof, and Neo uh, does the same. But Trinity grabs the strap on the helicopter and jumps out of the helicopter, and everyone is saved. And Tank from the real world, looking 
at the code of the matrix as I knew it. He is the one. Do you, and then, do you believe it now? Morpheus asks. Neo tells him he isn't the one. That, Mor that, that, that or the oracle said so. But Morpheus says that the oracle just told him what he needed to hear, and there's a difference between knowing the path and walking the path. And this brings to mind the idea uh, that, that, that has often been discussed by, by Christians of this idea of heart knowledge versus head knowledge. So basically, this is that I can know something. In this case, I can know something about Jesus in my head. I could have the knowledge of the biblical story. I could know it. I could have that facts. I could have that information. But do I believe it? Head knowledge is knowing the facts and information. Heart knowledge is knowing someone personally and having a relationship with them. So you can know the accounts of Jesus and what he did and what he said, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you know Jesus on a personal level. You can know the path is Jesus, but that doesn't mean that you are following that path or that you're walking that path. So what about you? Do you know the path? Are you walking the path? Morpheus and Trinity get back to the real world. Um, and... Um, then they find out that, that they have, um, that the agents give their position, uh, or, or their position is found out, and a sentinel strike is ordered for their ship. So then, um, as they're ordering a sentinel strike, Agent Smith takes over the body of a homeless man in the subway, who's by the phone that they're using to get out, dial out of the Matrix, and Agent Smith Shoots out the phone just after Trinity goes back in the real world. So Trinity is in the real world. The phone is now shot, so she can't use that to get in back into the Matrix to go and see Neo. So now Neo is stuck in the Matrix, and Neo and Smith face each other, and Neo does not take the advice of everyone else. He doesn't run. And then Morpheus says that he is beginning to believe again here. Neo's trying to find out who he is. Uh, Jesus is always known. Neo and Smith fight, and Smith holds Neo onto the track of the subway with a, a train approaching and asks, Do you hear that, Mr. Anderson? It is the sound of inevitability. I feel like there is much I could say here, but as we see in a few moments, some things are not as inevitable as we think they may be. So Neo breaks free from Smith, and the subway hits him and kills him. But then the subway stops and Smith gets off the subway because he's taken over another body and this is where Neo runs. So back in the real world, the alarm for the Sentinels go off. They have five to six minutes until they get there and they are charging their EMPs. So EMPs are electromagnetic pulses. So they want to set one off because electromagnetic pulses kill everything that uses electricity, which are these Sentinels. So they can set off this pulse and it could kill take out the sentinel but it would also disable all the electricity on their ship so that neo would not dial out of the matrix it would cut the electricity off and he would die so uh they can't use the emp well neo is still in the matrix or else he'll die so neo is running from the agents trying to get to an exit and he runs through an apartment building with various people in the apartments and he um these people keep turning into agents and are trying to kill them and are throwing knives at them and doing all these things. And then back in the real world, the Sentinels reach the ship and start cutting through the outside trying to get inside. So then Neo runs to the building that has an exit in it and we can hear the phone ringing. But when he opens the room, 
where the phone is ringing, Agent Smith is already standing there, and he shoots Neo several times. Neo dies. In the Matrix, Neo dies. And in real life, Neo dies. He flatlines on the ship in the real world. And Morpheus in disbelief says, I can't believe it. Neo is dead. Here is another way in which he relates to Jesus. Because Jesus, too, was dead. By any definition of the word, Jesus is dead. Killed on a cross. Dead. Jesus is crucified, betrayed, handed over, and is crucified. Died. Neo is dead. He flatlines. He's dead. The agents check on him in the Matrix and they say that he is gone. People checked on Jesus when he was hanging on that cross. He was dead. Pierced in the side and dead. Neo is dead, which is again a, a direct correlation to Jesus because Jesus dies on that cross. It's on uh, up, up on Gal Golgotha, the, the place, place of the skull. Jesus dies. Neo is dead. The agents check on Neo in the Matrix and say that he is gone. And then the Sentinels by now are inside the ship. They've broken through the outer layer and they're going through their layers and, and, and they're trying to get to the crew. But then Trinity looks at Neo and says, Neo, I'm not afraid anymore. The Oracle, she told me that I'd fall in love and that that man, the man that I loved, would be the one. So you see, you can't be dead. You can't be because I love you. Do you hear me? I love you. Then Trinity kisses Neo. She tells him she loves him, and then it appears that she literally breathes life back into Neo. And he is brought back to life, resurrected, mirroring the true biblical account of Jesus. Jesus died on the cross. He was dead. But then in Luke 24, verses 1 through 7, we read, very early in the morning on the first day of the week, the women went to the tomb, bringing the fragrant spices they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they didn't find the body of the Lord Jesus. They didn't know what to make of this. Suddenly two men were standing beside them in gleaming bright clothes. The women were frightened and bowed their faces toward the ground, but the men said, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He isn't here, but he has been raised. Remember what he told you while he was in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be handed over to sinners to be crucified, and on the third day would rise again. That is such a beautiful question. Why do you look for the living among the dead? Because Jesus, who had been dead, has been raised. He is no longer in the tomb. The grave can no longer hold him. Jesus is alive and he is resurrected and he is resurrected with power and with might and resurrected with the love of God and the power and might of God. In the Matrix, in the movie, Neo 2 is resurrected. 
breathed life back into him by a character named Trinity. Seems rather fitting. But Neo stands up and the agents are in disbelief. The the three agents look at Neo, raise their guns and fire. They they empty every single bullet that they have in their guns, but Neo just looks over and raises his hand in the air and says, No. And the bullets stop in midair before they hit him. He picks a bullet out of the air and looks at it, then drops it, and the rest of them fall the rest of the bullets fall too. And Morpheus says as he looks at the code, he is the one. Neo looks at the world of, that is the Matrix and sees code. And, and, and what I believe is happening here is that Neo is able to realize that this is a computer program and he has power over it. That, that, that he is able to look and say that I can realize that this may seem and may look and may touch and may taste and may feel real, but it actually isn't. It's a simulation. And he can look at it and he can can separate from that in a way that others can't. So that's why I think that he sees the code there. But in Romans 4, one, in Romans 1 verse 4, we read, Jesus was publicly identified as God's son with power through his resurrection from the dead, which was based on the spirit of holiness. This son is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus has power over death and sin through resurrection. Christ is victorious. This is referred to as Christus Victor, Latin for Christ the victor, that Jesus has victory over death and sin. And because of that, we too can have victory over death and sin. Christ has paid the price that we owed for sin. And because of that, he can liberate people from eternal death and set people free from the bondage of sin. Christ is victorious. So we go back to the movie and Agent Smith runs at Neo and he tries to punch him, but he can't. Neo gets to the point where he only needs to use one arm to overcome Agent Smith. And then in a strange and interesting scene, he he jumps into to Agent Smith and then breaks out of him as he defeats the agent as what appears would be once and for all. And for the first time, we see something interesting. It's not a human running from an agent, but it's the agents running from a human. Back in the real world, the Sentinels are mere feet from the crew, and Neo gets out of the Matrix, and the EMP blast is triggered, and they are all saved. And then the closing lines of the Matrix belong to Neo. He says them into a phone, uh, inside a phone booth, and here's what he says. I know you're out there. I can feel you now. I know that you're not that you're afraid. You're afraid of us. You're afraid of change. I don't know the future. I didn't come here to tell you how this is going to end. I came to tell you how this is going to begin. I'm going to hang up this phone and then I'm going to show these people what you don't want them to see. I'm going to show them a world without you, a rule a world without rules and controls, without borders and boundaries. A world where anything is possible, where you go from here, is a choice I leave to you. He says this into a phone in the phone booth, and then a song from a band, Rage Against the Machine, starts to play, which seems rather fitting, because Neo has just raged against the machines, I think, so it's a rather 
fitting band to be playing a song there. Uh, and, and Neo says something interesting here that he doesn't know the end. Only the beginning. But friends, God knows the beginning and the end. The Alpha and the Omega. We know that Jesus is going to return. That Jesus also knows the end. He knows how the beginning and he knows the middle. He knows the end. He knows it all. And then in the movie, Neo steps out of the phone booth and flies away. Neo has power in the resurrection and he wants to set people free. Jesus has power in the resurrection and he wants to set people free. Romans seven twenty four and 25 says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Who can save us? Who has the power to do that? Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty through 57 reads, This is what I'm saying, brothers and sisters. Flesh and blood can't inherit God's kingdom. Something that rots can inherit something that doesn't decay. Listen, I'm telling you a secret. All of us won't die, but we will all be changed in an instant. The blink of an eye at the final trumpet. The trumpet will blast and the dead will be raised with bodies that won't decay and we will be changed. It's necessary for this rotting body to be clothed with what can't decay for the body that is is dying to be clothed in what can't die. And when the rotting body has been clothed in what can't decay, and the dying body has been clothed in what can't die, then this statement in Scripture will happen. Death has been swallowed up by a victory. Where is your victory, death? Where, O oh death, is your sting? Death's sting is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us his victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have victory over sin through the birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. Praise God because Jesus is victorious and we can share in that victory too and we accept him as Lord and Savior. The victory is ours because the victory is his. And Jesus invites us to share in that victory with him. He came to set people free and he's able to do that. So in wrapping up this, we see parallels to the gospel in the prophecies that are given about Neo returning. Neo has some prophecies about him. Jesus also has prophecies about him, and he fulfills all the prophecies of the Messiah that are given in the Old Testament. We also have a John the Baptist character with Morpheus, who is not the one, who some people may think that he's the one, but he's not, and just is pointing the way and preparing the way for the one. So John the Baptist is in Morpheus. Then we have a, a, a Judas character, where he is the one who betrays, and Cypher is the one here, who betrays. And then obviously we have the Christ figure as well, uh, who is Neo, who who is the one who uh, is dead and resurrected and then has power in that resurrection, just like Jesus was dead and then came back from the dead, was risen and has power in that resurrection. So I think the Matrix does a really incredible job of trying to do some kind of a retelling of the greatest story ever known. And that is the true story of Jesus Christ. So remember that through Jesus' birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension, we can be forgiven and adopted into his family. We can be saved and set free. So I really enjoy the matrix and looking at all these, and, and even this idea 
of being born in bondage being born in sin the problem that neo is addressing is the matrix the problem that jesus addresses is sin and i really like that idea of the matrix and sin being very similar and being a great analogy that is there and i think i'd like to even do some more thinking about that and maybe we will need a matrix revisited episode at some point um but if you have any ideas for future or further episodes please let me know and contact me at those ways that i've talked about whether it's the website or through social media or email or if you have any questions about this episode we're kind of uh, bringing this wrapping this up here um and and i hope that you truly enjoyed this as much as i did but if you have any questions or thoughts or comments or concerns regarding this episode please reach out you can Again, find us on um, Twitter or Instagram at Theology and Sci-Fi. Again, uh, we spell Sci-Fi the right way, S-C-I-F-I. So Theology and Sci-Fi, all one word. You can give me a follow. Or Facebook, uh, search for Theology and Sci-Fi, the podcast. Or you can email me at theologyandsci-fi at gmail.com. So again, if you have any questions, if you have any thoughts, if you have any Uh, disagreements or concerns or whatever it may be feel free to give me an email i'll try to get back to you as soon as i can or you can even contact me through those other uh, social media sites and in those ways but i hope that you enjoyed this as much as i did this was a lot of fun for me being able to discuss a a number of different theological theme things through the vehicle of science fiction so thank you for listening And I hope you share this podcast. I guess you're supposed to give it a follow or a rate or review or subscription, whatever whatever word they're using now. I don't know. If you feel like doing any of those things, that would be great. If you uh, think uh, you know somebody who would really appreciate this and and, and is a fan of The Matrix and has maybe looked at not seeing things in The Matrix from this perspective, go ahead and and share this. Go ahead and, sh- and share this podcast with them. That would be great to be able to do that. And hopefully um, one of the things that I want to encourage you to do as well is um, in the books you're reading or in the TV shows you're watching or the movies you're watching, whatever it may be, I encourage you to look for theological themes. So I don't know if you do this when you go out to a, a movie with your friends or not, but you go, you watch a movie, and, and what's the first question we all ask ourselves? Well, so what did you think of it? was all right yeah i liked it oh i enjoyed it or i I like this part or i like that part but what if instead we could say you know that part reminded me of jesus because and whatever that may be be, because of the grace that was given or because of a, a, a a sacrifice that was made there are so many different christ figures within so many different works of fiction so one of the things we should be doing is looking for hey how how is how can we see god through this film and then talk with your friends about it so keep an eye out for the theological themes that you see and things that you're watching and that may be open uh may be able to open a door to be able to share your faith with others so again i appreciate you listening and um join us for uh, the following episodes that are going to be released in season two again in january uh 2022 we'll be looking at star wars and we'll be starting then the only place you can really start by looking at Star Wars with A New Hope. Well, so we'll just be looking at that one film, A New Hope. So we'll dive into the world of the Force and lightsabers in January 2022. And I'm really looking forward to that and hope that you are too. 
Again, if you have any questions, any thoughts, whatever it may be, go ahead and contact me through Twitter, Instagram, email, or Facebook. And I hope you've had as fun a time listening to this as I have had preparing for it. And truly, 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 I want to thank you um, for being here and for listening. And before we end, if you enjoyed the musical intro to this podcast as much as I did, and if you enjoy the musical outro that you're about to hear as much as I do, or if you need any kind of music or sound for projects uh, that you're working on, or if you would just like some original pieces or collaborative designs composed for your stage show or podcast or commercial or any other kind of show or any kind of media, if you need something musically done, I'm going to um, refer you to my man, David Ifland. You can find him on Instagram at d.s.ifland. Again, d.s.ifland. He composed the intro and the outro for me. I absolutely love it. I told him the idea of what this podcast would be for. And I said, can you do something within music that's also kind of sci-fi? And I don't even know what that means. And then in communication a couple days later, I'm like, maybe we can do some kind of hymn and make it some kind of sci-fi-ish something. And he's like, that's what I was already thinking of. So we were on the same page. He did great. I truly appreciate it and love it. Thank you, David. If you need any kind of music for any kind of project, hit up David and he will be able to help you out. And I, you'll, you'll be pleased with it um, just as I am, I'm sure. So again, uh, thanks, David, for that. If you need him, uh, you, that's where you can find him. And thank you for listening. I truly appreciate it and look forward to the next episode and look forward to hearing from you. Any thoughts you may have I would be greatly appreciated. And I hope that, as I said in the beginning, I, I hope that as you learn more about me as we go through this, that I can also learn more about you. So I hope you're in touch and I hope that uh, you won't hesitate to reach out if you have anything. And um, when you reach out to me, I'll try my best to get back to you in a timely manner. So again, for Theology and Sci-Fi, thank you for watching. This is for watching. Man, we're, we're skipping ahead to video already. Goodness. For Theology and Sci-Fi, this is Derek V. Trout. Thanks for listening. And remember, all I'm offering is the truth. Nothing more.